VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, July the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout, get in the queue, and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it's recycling day in my neighborhood. Now, with the introduction of the clear garbage bags for what's headed to the landfill... That certainly has played an active role in the increase in recycling, which has been good news for taxpayers in this city, for instance, because more recycling, less going to the landfill, which means less paid in tipping fees, and consequently, we're charging people, pardon me, the city's paying less to dispose of your garbage. And I'm loath to judge a book by its cover. But with recycling, I don't know how this makes anyone else feel. There used to be this young fellow who was quite industrious and energized, and on recycling day, he would make his way through our neighborhood and take whatever he could so that he could cash it in and over at the uh, recycling depot. Okay, no problem, right? And again, not to judge anybody specifically, but now that person's been replaced by someone who's much quicker to get around because they're driving a brand new SUV Taking the recycling off the curb. I mean, fair enough. That's how they're paying for their new SUV or a trip down south or whatever. But there's just something to it. We actually are going to haul back our recycling so that when and if someone able, is able to spot the fellow with the cart who's trying to make ends meet, very much more likely in a difficult situation than the person in the brand new rig, then we're going to give them to him. I don't know what anyone thinks about that, but maybe I shouldn't have even brought it up. Whatever. All right, a little wrap-up of the North American Indigenous Games. Quite the medal haul coming from our athletes. I believe the number was somewhere around 129 athletes, whether they be Mi'kmaq, Inuit, or Inu, that participated in the Games, which were huge, right? 5,000-plus athletes participating in a variety of sports, ages 13 to 19. We took home 40 medals, which is pretty great. 10 gold medals, 14 silver, 16 bronze. 23 of our athletes came home with more than one medal. So that's terrific stuff. We competed in and medal in golf, swimming, volleyball, beach volleyball, basketball, badminton, and athletics. So well done. 40 medals. Not insignificant. All right. I don't know how many people are interested in watching the FIFA Women's World Cup. I'm tuning in. So Canada trying to bounce back tomorrow against number 22-ranked Ireland after a nil-nil draw with Nigeria, who are number 40 in the world. And a couple of interesting things happened yesterday at the World Cup. So the Philippines get their first ever win in the World Cup. They beat the host New Zealand 1-0. And an American-born uh, player named Casey Fair plays for South Korea. Youngest person ever to appear in the World Cup, 26 days after her 16th birthday. So that is pretty wild. And an interesting sports note, when I see some of the legendary names, I don't mind throwing it around. On this date, so you know what a walk-off home run is. So you're tied or just tra trailing in the bottom of the ninth. You hit a home run or you clear the bases and they call it a walk-off because the game's over because the other team doesn't have a chance to hit again after the bottom of the ninth if it's not tied. So we saw extra innings last night. Good win for the Jays. But it was on this date in 1956. Pittsburgh Pirates legend Roberto Clemente hit Major League Baseball first and only walk-off inside the park. Grand slam for a 9-8 win versus the visiting Chicago Cubs at Forbes Field. That's an interesting one. Walk off inside the park at Grand Slam. Okay. So we see that the registered nurses have ratified their deal. We're going to speak with the president of the Registered Nurses Union, Yvette Coffey, sometime early in the program today. 
So some of the details. A 2% raise each year from 2022 to 2026. A one-time bonus of $2,000 for each of the union's 5,800 members. There's also some attention to trying to strike a bit more of a balance. You know, because retention is going to be the key, as many, including Miss Coffey, speaks to. Not so sure it's done much to deal with what the bill is associated with the travel agency nurses, which is huge. And I'm not even sure how we tackle that. So we'll break down some of the details, get some elaboration on things like addition of a mentorship program, how that's going to work, substituting non-Christian holidays for other ones. That's pretty self-explanatory. Enhancement to the preceptorship program. Not even sure what that means. Getting some shift, uh, shift scheduling adjusted more for the so-called work-life balance or what people call the work-life balance. So we'll see what we can get from Miss Coffee, but there are some of the basic details and very good news. I think the ratification numbers were in excess of 80%. So we'll see what some of the holdouts, those who voted against this contract, some of their concern areas that we're going to have to navigate. I would imagine some of those would be nurse practitioners because we still haven't really quite figured that out, rate of pay and otherwise. All right, with the demand on the system, which is very similar and similar problems being experienced by people in every province and territory in the country. So what we've seen, and we've talked about in the past, some of the clinics that are charging people cash on the barrel head for some hip replacements or knee replacement types of surgeries. Now, there's a story that's as old as 2008 where a uh, medical clinic in Calgary started to charge their patients a membership fee. It's becoming more and more popular. Another clinic, this time also in Calgary, the patients who were on the roster of this clinic were dismayed to get an email and to find out that they are moving to a membership-based clientele. Now, the Canada Health Act is pretty clear. You cannot charge cash for medically necessary procedures, which is still how I don't necessarily understand how they're getting away with it in some of these orthosurgery clinics. But in the membership world, technically, they're not doing anything wrong because they're not charging cash for a a necessary medical procedure. But it will absolutely put those who can afford it at the front of the pack and those who can't at the very bottom of the pack. Now, this particular clinic is going to continue to offer one day a week for their non-members, but this is problematic. Let's get a load of some of the numbers associated with this. So $4,800 a year for a two-parent family membership covers two adults and their dependent children. It varies from clinic to clinic, and there's different packages available. But this is a problem. Even if it's not technically in contravention of the Canada Health Act, this is something that I think the provinces are going to have to deal with directly. It sounds problematic to me. I don't know how it sounds to you. I guess it depends on the amount of money you have coming in the door. So there's an evaluation done about the landscape of these membership-based clinics. Between November 19 and June 2020, there were 14 private clinics in Alberta, a range membership fees and private payments. In that same period, there were 24 said clinics in Ontario and 30 in Quebec. So some people have no problem with the expanded private offering, and there's long been a private feature of universal health care in this country, whether it be with visits to a chiropractor or a dentist's office, and yes, there's a place you can pay cash for an MRI and other diagnostic imaging, but this seems to me to be a real problem. People say, what's the big deal, right? People will get out of the public queue, take care of their own business inside whatever clinic through their membership or cash on the barrel had some twenty-eight dollars or $30,000 to get their knee replaced, but... What happens when and if this becomes more and more prevalent and more and more doctors are siphoned out of the public system, the private clinics will be able to reject patients who have really chronic uh, illness and very complex concerns. And so consequently, the public system really doesn't bear any real relief. It just means that those who can afford it, the muckety mucks, they get healthcare first. 
certainly is not what the Canada Health Act intends. So membership fee at your medical clinic. Yeah, not at your gym, at your medical clinic. I'm not so sure about that one. You want to take it on? We can do it. Sticking with healthcare, we know the province has gone back to the well for a second time regarding the potential to expand fertility services, specifically an in vitro fertilization clinic. It was on this date in 1978, English-born Louise Joy Brown became the first human to be born after conception by in vitro fertilization. The parents have been trying for some nine years, a variety of complications, including blocked fallopian tubes. They went to the Oldham General Hospital, underwent a procedure developed by Patrick Steptoe and Robert Edwards, who were later awarded the 2010 Nobel Prize in Medicine. The media at the time referred to this baby, Louise Joy Brown, as a test tube baby. But her conception actually took place in the Petri dish. So in vitro fertilization, successful all the way back to 1978. In this province, so the government admits that the initial RFP was probably too short in time. Only one respondent, not up to the task. They have rejigged it, reworded it, expanded the opportunity for the community to react to the RFP. So what we have now is they put in travel subsidies. Nowhere near covering the full travel, if indeed you need to go as far as Calgary, for in vitro services. So it's $5,000 per for up to three cycles the first go around i believe the number was the 121 people had availed of at least one of the five thousand dollar subsidies so we talk about population base and birth rate and of course the death rate outpaces the birth rate in this province young families with their ability to start a family here and to stay here is in our collective best interest so i just thought it was of note that in vitro the first baby born in 1978 and here we are trying to figure it out to this day in this province Okay, let's move off into some transportation-related matters. So, people have a variety of concerns regarding the grid capacity and what needs to be done with all of this transitioning in the world of energy. Okay, so there's been a lot of keen focus on electric vehicles, which is not the be-all and end-all. It's something that people will indeed consider. There are some potential operational savings if you have an electric vehicle or a hybrid, and those numbers are increasing here in this province. In 2022, the number, total number of electric vehicles rose to 715 from 398. That's a 126% increase. Hybrid vehicles also becoming more and more popular. Uh, those increases represented by 53%, but the total, in, even inside the hybrid, is only 2,149. These are the 2022 numbers. Now, when people have the grid capacity concern, those numbers still only represent 4.4 of registered vehicles in the province sold last year. So not big, massive jump, but it will increase over time. Given some of the rebates available from the province and the federal government, it's becoming a bit more attractive. So whether your concern is regarding emissions and transportation, that sector represents about 40% of the emissions in this province. So not everyone's going to do it, and it won't work for everybody. But if the federal liberals had their way, it's going to be more and more popular based on legislation, period. So Ottawa, and this may be enacted sometime this year, and who knows if it's ever going to last if the government changes hands, but they have proposed regulations that will require at least 20% of the new vehicles sold in Canada will be zero emissions by 2026. It does not include, obviously, emissions created while the construction of an EV takes place. Increase that number to 100% of vehicles by 2035. Now, you can grandfather in your internal combustion engine if these regulations see the light of day and last until 2035. So 
The move is there, and some rebates that are in their provincial rebate in the last budget sticks around at $2,500 for electric vehicles, $1,500 rebate for the plug-in hybrid. So there you go. And if you're interested in electric vehicles, want to see more, ask questions, talk about upside, talk about operational savings, the Take Charge Everything EVs Roadshow back this year actually kicks uh, kicks off today in Deer Lake. So if you're so inclined... They're going to be in Deer Lake today at the Legion from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Margaret Broadwater Park in Cornerbrook from the same time frame, 4 to 7. Then Thursday, Cobbs Rotary Park in Gander, 4 to 7. Saturday, make their way to Clarenville at the Clarenville Inn from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And they wrap it up on Sunday, the 30th of July, at the St. John's Farmer's Market from 10.30 to 4 p.m. So if you're interested in asking questions, seeing some of the EVs, there you go. All right, I've been asked why we haven't talked about this, but of course, I prefer if you bring it up as opposed to rely on me to bring up every issue. This regarding service dogs. And look, fair enough, we've had some instances that have reared their head in this province. I remember one on a quarterbrook at a mall where a veteran with their service dog was kicked out of the mall. Then we've seen it at least twice in this province, just in the taxi industry. You know, I'm sure not every instance where someone's been asked to leave a place where you're not supposed to have a dog, even though we're supposed to have a firm understanding of what a service dog is and understanding the accreditation and what needs to be displayed to say, yes, this is indeed an approved service dog. And this is in the taxi industry. So it happened citywide about a decade ago, and the Human Rights Commission ruled against them, and there was a, uh, a $5,000 sum award to Anne Malone. Now it's happened again to a person who had been struck by a car and with the post-traumatic stress has a service dog, refused service by that taxi company again. So this is wider and broader than simply the taxi business. So I was asked to bring it up, and I think this person may indeed be in a position where they're worried about access to whatever be public or private buildings, public transportation, and or a taxi cab because they have a service dog. So that has happened twice. I guess it says that it's not necessarily an isolated instance because it's happened at least twice to that one taxi company, so you want to take that on. Let's do it. Sticking with transportation. Announcement yesterday at St. John's International Airport with WestJet. It really looked like and felt like WestJet was going to be a regional carrier servicing Western Canada, Air Canada for the rest of the country. Now they've put down a bit of a bigger footprint here, and I think that's good news for many of the traveling public. You know, there is a school of thought out there that, you know, who cares? Why do we focus on that? If the business model is not there, the airlines won't put, won't put these routes in place. I think it's a really good idea if we have easier access, expanded direct flights in and out of the International Airport in St. John's for a variety of reasons. But here's what WestJet has said. It's pretty popular, the travel routes to Calgary. So twice a week flights uh, from WestJet to Calgary. And then, you know, they talk about we haven't had an international flight since 2019, but we have indeed had hot spots for tourists like Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Flights to St. Pierre and Miquelon, which don't really count as a European flight, if you ask me. So the Calgary flight, that's it. There's also going to be direct routes to Orlando and Tampa Bay. I don't have a big interest in Florida these days, but anyway, those are the announcements. But... No European direct flight. There is an upside to it. I mean, there's lots of business relationships going on between people living and working in this province, companies that have set down and uh, set up shop in this province who are European-based. So the province had met with Condor, that's a German airline, some while back. But here's what's also interesting, is that, you know, many people think it's all about incentives. And it's how we lost, say, for instance, our direct flight to Dublin. And now Halifax, Stanfield has consequently since lost it as well. 
But the Premier says, and I wasn't in the room, but the Premier says that it, now it doesn't sound like it's all about incentives. It's simply about capacity. They don't have the aircraft and the air crew or the ground crew or the mechanics to even expand any further than they announced yesterday. So it'll be welcome news in some corners, but still big questions about international routes, especially Europe and maybe somewhere like Newark, a real hub turnaround for connections in New Jersey. All right. Read a story today about... The fact that they're going to perform DNA tests on the victims of the Titan. We saw some pretty large pieces of wreckage. They have brought up some what they think are human remains. I guess I totally misunderstand what the implosion at that pressure meant. We were looking at simulations about what the implosion would mean, and it kind of looked like everything simply disintegrated. Yet some pretty big portions of the submersible came to the surface. And I guess they found some human remains. They're going to do the DNA testing to see if it's one of the five who perished in the submersible not too long down. And we can take on, you know, that horrific and tragic story. And not to be cruel or cold or callous, but with adventure tourism and some very high-risk activities people are willing to take on, trying to make their way across the Atlantic Ocean in, in essence, was a bathtub and or going down to try to view the Titanic and other examples where we know it is highly risky and then whether or not, A, we should allow them to use their uh, point of beginning their voyage or their adventure from anywhere in the province. I'm not so sure that's manageable. But then secondly, is what about the cost associated with search and rescue? You know, should there be insurance that holds the liability for those who may need to be rescued because of these types of risky behaviors people are willing to entertain? Or is search and rescue specifically there for that? And who gets to be the arbiter of what brings on an associated or a heightened risk so that they'll have to cover any search and rescue capacity and response? Sounds a bit cold, but it's a question being asked. All right, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? Let's get it rolling here this morning. A couple of quick ones. Looks like and sounds like there's going to be a significant shakeup in the federal cabinet. Looks like a shuffle is going to be announced tomorrow. Who knows who's going to be in, who's going to be out. There's a few uh, ministers who I'm sure are quite nervous about their standing inside the federal cabinet. But one thing I will say is there's just too many cabinet ministers. I mean, there really is. There's 39 people in the federal cabinet. Now, some don't even have what is an official portfolio necessarily and a real department. They have a portfolio, but they don't have an department. So 39 to whatever the right size number would be. There's been governments in the past that have had fewer than 30 uh, federal cabinet ministers, but here we are at 39, just feels like a lot. And some questions continue to roll in about the Climate Incentive Action Plan, the carbon tax rebate. If you're set up with CRA for direct deposit, you already have it. And it comes in a lump sum based on the makeup of your household. If you owe taxes, they've withheld those monies and attributed to your uh, outstanding balance at CRA. And even to some CERB clawback continues with these checks coming from the government. If you owe them money or they're clawing back money or you owe taxes, they're going to withhold these payments. So everyone in the country should have the check if you're waiting for a check today, tomorrow, sometime by the end of this week. They're asking you not to call and you do what you see fit regarding it. There's a carbon tax inquiry. If you did not get it through direct deposit and you have questions, fair ball. It's toll-free number. It might be jammed like every other federal government number, but it's 1-800-387-1111. 
1193. That's questions about the GST and or the carbon rebate. But if you owe the government money, they're going to withhold that. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to join us live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, as mentioned, you've heard in the news, the Registered Nurses Union have ratified a four-year contract with the provincial government. Join us on the line, on line number one, is the president of the RNUNL. That's Yvette, uh, Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So what was the percentage that voted to ratify? 806 uh, of those who voted um, voted to ratify this collective agreement. Inside the almost 20% that voted no towards ratification, do we happen to know how many of those might be nurse practitioners, what some of their outstanding issues are still remaining? Um, no, I don't have the percentage of nurse practitioners. We just know that almost 20% of our membership uh, voted no uh, and didn't feel that we got enough in this collective agreement, that it didn't go far enough. Uh, what I say is this is a foundation and a start. We will be continuing to work with government and the health authority to um, make improvements in the workplace, uh, to address violence, work-life balance, decrease mandatory overtime, and we will continue to talk about uh, compensation uh, outside of collective bargaining. Before we get into what was in the deal, for nurse practitioners in particular, what specifically are they saying? Because I would imagine they don't feel the same way as whoever in the registered nurses fold who voted yes. So in this collective agreement, we actually uh, carved out the nurse practitioners uh, for salary uh, to a separate uh, step on our classification system where they have the ability to actually uh, go further with their compensation. They did get a higher salary increase than the registered nurses uh, to get them to par with Atlantic Canada. Now, of course, Nova Scotia just announced a tentative deal, which puts them, uh, their nurse practitioners, top in the country. Um, so we're already behind the eight ball when it comes to compensation. But it's a start, and uh, we had to start somewhere, and we do feel, our team felt, that there was a recognition that NPs in this province have the highest scope of practice in the country, and that we had to do something different this time uh, to show them that they were valued and respected. One component of the contract is an addition of a mentorship program. What does that mean? How does it work? So what we've been hearing from new graduates and internationally educated nurses or nurses who are new coming to the province is that when they get on the ground and they get in the workplace with the overtime, with the working shores, they didn't have the support on the ground for them as new people into the system. And this mentorship program is meant to incentivize people to mentor. Uh, so you take an experienced registered nurse uh, on a unit and they would pair up with a new uh, employee and be there for their as a support system for them to answer questions um to have a you know a listening ear etc um and registered nurses and nurse practitioners will be paid for doing this mentorship is that very much akin or a dovetail with the enhancement to the preceptorship program so it's two different things. So there is an enhancement. There is a money value put on preceptorship as well. Preceptorship is, uh, you know, new students in the clinical setting. Uh, we take them, uh, they're assigned to a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner in the clinical setting. Uh, and also for, like, say, when I did critical care course, I went in and I had to do four weeks of classroom and then 
four to six weeks of being assigned to a registered nurse in order to be able to practice independently in the ICU. So that clinical period will be considered preceptorship as well. And the registered nurse or nurse practitioner who would take on this new person would get paid a premium. Inside the world of scope of practice, you mentioned nurse practitioners, but the ability for a registered nurse now to be able to prescribe drugs, referrals to specialists, referrals for diagnostic imaging, it comes with some time and there's some three modules in the prescribing of pharmaceuticals. Does this contract address any of those additional workloads? Well, we did manage to increase, uh, you know, the salaries for registered nurses as well. Um, And, you know, there's always going to be increased scopes of practice. But like I said, this collective agreement is a start. And as more stuff comes on board, such as the prescribing and that, there will be changes to the job classification system. uh, And people can do appeals through that once their scope of practice increases. When they talk about shift scheduling and mandatory overtime and some of the work-life balance concerns, what exactly or specifically is addressed regarding shift scheduling? So we did uh, get self-scheduling guidelines included in this collective agreement. They've been out now for a year, but we're still having, you know, on the ground, it just hasn't filtered down. Um, you know, some managers think that, uh, you know, we won't work and, and they're resistant to it. And by putting it in the collective agreement, we are ensuring that it does get enforced in that. I often say, if you have 12 nurses for a rotational schedule, you have 12 nurses for a self-schedule. There's no difference. But also with scheduling in that, you know, there is an ability in our collective agreement for somebody to do uh, 10-hour shifts, for to do altered start, start times for their shifts. Uh, that ability has always been there through private agreements with the union, but we now have it in the collective agreement. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that people can be flexible. The, we're also converting casual and part-time uh, people to permanent full-time positions. Um, and that's something that's going to be happening now over the next few months. We'll be meeting with the employer now within a couple of months to look at where these conversions can happen but people will have the ability to job share for instance like two part-time people can job share a permanent full-time position uh, which gives them flexibility as well there was a a monetary incentive to move people off the casual list to the permanent full-time list you say that people are indeed taking the government up on that do we have a number Uh, No, no number on that yet, but we do have incentives in this collective agreement that recognizes um, the long-term permanent staff for their 15, 20, and 25 years of service, and also uh, a permanent full-time bonus. So if if you take a permanent full-time position or in a permanent full-time position, you'll be paid extra money on your check every two weeks. And we know it came with a one-time bonus of $2,000 for each of your members, 2% raise for each year over the course of 22 to 26. Other than these pay issues, is there anything in the agreement or other conversations happening with government regarding the numbers of travel agency nurses? Because we understand what that would mean to be working shoulder to shoulder with someone who has more flexibility and makes double or triple what you make. So anything in the contract addressing that or anything that the government is saying to try to have a better understanding of these agency nurses and how we move away from the reliance that we have on them? Well, this is one thing that myself and the finance minister and premier and uh, minister of health all agree on, 
that uh, agency nurses, these private agency nurses, is not a sustainable solution to our healthcare crisis and the nursing shortage. And this agreement, what we're hoping is that it will stabilize the nursing workforce, that we will see less people leave the system to go casual or to go with travel agencies. Anybody who now resigns their permanent position um, within the health authorities or within uh, Newfoundland and Labrador will actually lose their seniority um, and everything um, and will have to come back as a, what we call an obligated casual if they want to come back into the workforce as a casual employee. So we are trying to incentivize people to take permanent positions. 67% of our members are permanent full-time. And we would like to pull the other 20-odd, 73% back into the system. So stopping short of imposing a non-compete. Well, you can put it like that. Okay, Uh, fair enough. Um, Let's talk about recruitment, because I know you're focusing on retention. I understand that concept. How is the recruitment program working? Because we know that other provinces are coming here and dangling incentives in front of the members of the medical school, registered nurses, a bunch of different technicians and therapists. Is the recruitment recruitment program working the way it should, given the some 750 vacancies we have in the RNs? Well, we do know that they're expecting 200 uh, internationally educated nurses to arrive in this province uh, in the next six months or so. Uh, We still have 750 vacancies. There have been a lot of uh, recruitment bonuses offered, and we saw it with LPNs, registered nurses, and nurse practitioners this past year for long-term care, nurse practitioners in primary healthcare clinics, the collaborative clinics that we're uh, seeing pop up throughout the province, which is one of the recommendations of the health court. And hopefully with all these recruitment efforts, we will see more people coming into the system and with the retention efforts in this collective agreement, less people exiting the system. So hopefully to stabilize and decrease the use of agency nurses. Now, we also have, uh, which we started last year, it's almost a year now, a pilot project where we're actually paying our own nurses to travel to Labrador. It's called Travel Locum. And the hope is that once we get the evaluation done for that, that that will actually, we'll have our own travel nursing group within the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, which will further decrease the use of private agency nurses. Will that come with a similar pay that we see for the travel agency nurses from the private sector? No. Okay. Uh, that's like as I said, that is not sustainable. Paying someone, no. uh, ner- paying them a hundred bucks an hour. Uh, some of the agencies are actually getting one hundred thirty dollars an hour. That's not what the nurse is getting, but that's not sustainable for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, or any province or territory in Canada for that matter. And every province is looking at ways to decrease the use of these private agencies. You talk about recruitment of nurses from elsewhere, let's say India, specifically where the government set up shop. For lack of a better phrase, how about the captive audiences we have at nursing schools here, whether it be for nurse practitioners and or registered nurses? Are we getting to them first? Are we in constant contact with them because they're much more likely to stay and work here than people coming from elsewhere? I do know the health authorities and even the department have been into nurse practitioner uh, students and bachelor science and nursing students. Uh, Can they do more? Yes, absolutely, because we are hearing, you know, people are being recruited on their Facebook pages from other uh, provinces in Newfoundland and Labrador and these private agencies. 
Um, you know, we've had discussions with the college uh, for registered nurses and nurse practitioners recently and talked about we need to be doing more to um, show what nursing really is, to showcase, you know, the good with the bad and the ugly. Uh, you know, everybody knows about the mandatory overtime and, you know, working short in that. But nursing is a very rewarding career. Um, you know, 33 years ago, I graduated from General Hospital School of Nursing. I wouldn't change that course for myself uh, in any way, looking back over my career. Uh, it's very fulfilling. Uh, you have opportunity to work in many different areas. You learn something new every single day. Not every day is not repetitive. Uh, there's always something new to learn. There's always new innovations, new technologies, and new patients. And just having that connection with our patients and their families and the communities of Newfoundland and Labrador is a very rewarding uh, piece to that career. Yeah, and akin to, you know, women in the trades, maybe male in the nursing profession might be a nice recruitment tool. Given that the numbers of males in nursing school seats across the country is growing, but maybe there's a solution there. Uh, last one, a quick question from a listener for you, Yvette. It says, please ask about letter from Yvette Coffee about 18% equivalent raise for registered nurses. 18%? It, it, and I'm not even sure, but I, I, if I know what this means, is ask about a letter from you about 18% equivalent raise for RNs. Equivalent raise? Yeah, I'm not even sure. It's not from me. As I said, it's from a listener. I'm not 100% sure what that is getting at. Uh, yeah, so uh, because we got some, uh, we did get two, 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 and two, and yep. a $2,000 sign-on bonus, but we also made adjustments to each classification in our uh, contract and our collective agreement under job classification has six steps. So you get six years to get to the top of your step to get to your full pay. What we did was actually drop two steps and added two steps at the top so that people did get extra percentage points in their salaries. Uh, based on the step progression. So does that equal an 18% equivalent raise? Uh, almost. Almost. Uh, Yvette, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else you'd like to offer? Uh, like I said, this is a first step. We do have almost 20% of our membership who are not happy with this deal and didn't think we got enough. We do have more work to do, but we will continue to work collaboratively with the department and with government and the employers uh, on solutions outside of collective bargaining. Appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yvette Coffey is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll speak to you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Thank you for taking my call, you and David and POC. I really appreciate it. I'm calling about the seriousness of moose vehicle accidents, Patty. And every time I hear us talk of a serious moose vehicle accident, it triggers me off, of course, because uh, I've been in a, a bad moose vehicle accident, my family members have. And I've lost a friend from the moose vehicle accident, and uh, the list goes on. So, Patty, uh, you know, I, I started SOPAC back in 2009, and we did get some footage, and we have got some brush cut, which we really appreciate. But, Patty, uh, you know, 
it's not enough being done. The government, I'm sure they listen to VOCM, and I understand it's been recorded, actually, the, the open line show. Uh, you know, we, we've been asking for fencing in hot spots. That hasn't happened for many years now. We know that. And what's on the West Coast now, I got a phone call saying it's fallen down. So they haven't took it serious enough to fix up the fencing that's been erected there over the years, years ago. I got trouble understanding that, Patty. We've had four people killed between Badger and Stokebrook in the last year. Four people killed, many people injured. I talked to a friend last night here in Lewisport. I'm in Lewisport right now. And, and he, had, he had a serious moose vehicle accident in that area and demolished his vehicle, but he survived, thank God. Patty, I don't know what got to be done. I know what we had to do years ago when I was chair of SOPAC. We had to demonstrate and everything else to get the government moving. And we did get them moving somewhat. Got some brush cut, got some signage, got a little bit of uh, fencing. I don't know. Like, I, I think we're being too quiet now. SOPEC really needs. And, you know, and, and our, our chair at the time was Lucy Stiles that had a daughter in a moose vehicle accident. And, I mean, she's an MHA now, and she knows that we're having people getting injured and killed. Uh, I, I don't understand why everyone is so quiet. Uh, you know, I, I'm probably the only one who's on the radio talking about it. And, and, and that's sad because I just came from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and, and, and Quebec. And where they got a problem with with loose vehicle accidents, they got it fenced, they got it hydro seated, and government, like the Minister of Transportation, the Minister of Wildlife, the Minister, and and people involved with this, and they know where the accidents are. Please pay attention to what we're trying to accomplish. Grub it off, hydro seated, so you'll have seed in your ditches instead of brush like they do on the mainland. I mean, they got hundreds of, of kilometers of fencing down in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick now. So so they're taking it serious. They got very few moose compared to us. We got more per capita than any other part of the world, you know, for people I'm talking about. Uh, so, Petty, I, I really don't know if they're out there, if the government is out there and they're listening. You are uh, your own people hostage in this province, and people are getting injured and killed. What do we have to do? We have to do what we did back years ago, demonstrate again? I mean, we're, we've been trying to get that brush cut where these people got killed. SOPEC been trying to get that brush cut where people got killed. But they haven't cut the brush. They don't give a... Anyway, Patty, was you going to say something? No, I was just listening. Uh, you know where I stand on all this stuff, and I don't think anybody that turns a deaf ear to the moose, uh, moose on the road and what it means and collisions that have been happened between vehicles and moose. And, of course, yesterday, 54-year-old killed on the highway as a result of a head-on collision, yeah. swerving to yeah. avoid a moose. Yeah. So there's lots of instances where you might not even actually hit the moose, but you might be in the ditch or you might be head-on into an oncoming vehicle. So obviously it's an issue. Brush cutting and speed and time of day. I mean, if we, if the government paid attention to their role and we played our role, we'd reduce the numbers. It's never going to eliminate all of it necessarily, but, you know, more has to be done. The brush clearing is just the, the easy one, and I don't know why that isn't attended to every year to put those alders back as far as possible. There's parts of the province where you can actually scrape up the side of your vehicle because of the alders right there on the shoulder of the road, right by the white line. Petty, like transportation, Wallace, Department of Health, they know they're involved with these accidents. They know where the hot spots are. But 
I got to use the word they don't give a it's damn. All, I know you don't necessarily need to say that, but I know yeah, you're. I'm serious. They don't because that, that these these three people were killed there last year. Well, you know what I would have done if I was the minister of transportation of Wallet? I would have got on that right away. Suppose the last cent that this government had, I would got that brush cut right away because we don't want people killed. We don't want people injured and never work again. We got to take this serious. Our government is not taking it serious. Minister Fury, good friend of mine, please take the bull by the arms and get what's necessary done. Hot spots cleaned up, fencing if necessary. Go up and talk to your 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 your, your counterparts in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and see the hundreds of fencing, climbers of fencing they got done. Take it serious. We don't need no one else killed. I appreciate the time, Eugene. Thank you. Uh, have a good one, brother. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, as we know, during the pandemic, everything digital, whether it be Zoom meetings or otherwise, they increased exponentially. Same thing goes for people accessing library services. Now, there's been a big spike in usage, but there hasn't been anything near a spike. There's actually been a decrease in funding over the years. Join us on line number three when we come back as a regional librarian for the St. John's, uh, NL, uh, St. John's based NL Public Libraries. That's Emma Craig. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Emma Craig, Regional Librarian for St. John's with the NL Public Libraries. Good morning, Emma. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Great to talk about the library and books. Absolutely. So let's get to usage before we get to funding. So like everything else, we all turned online, whether it be for shopping or Zoom meetings or whatever the case may be during the pandemic. What did it mean for digital library services for you folks? Well, we actually saw a huge increase in our use of our digital library during COVID. So it shot up about 70% uh, in use during the COVID uh, pandemic. And of course, that wasn't a surprise. Like you said, a lot of people moving towards digital when the pandemic first struck. Uh, part of the surprise was that um, the amount of people who are continuing to use those services, which is a great thing, because obviously we want to make sure that they're, all of our services are seeing use from our patrons. It justifies the reasons why we have them. So 2018-19, checkouts totaled about 286,000. The 70% increase brings it to over 485,000, and that's remained fairly static, we're told. But how many new users? Because we may indeed have had people just go to the e-books or audio books time after time after time. How many new users part of the system? I believe it was around 7,000, not 7,000, sorry, 5,000 during that time, I believe. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me for how that's increased since 2020. So when it comes to buying books, and of course I can buy a book and put it on the shelf, it could be there for a long, long time until it becomes worn out or damaged or ripped up or torn. What's the difference between a physical book and the digital books because my understanding is they come with a number of times they can be circulated before they are no longer valid or have to be taken out so give us a difference about how many times i can reuse or re uh, issue a digital book versus a physical book you're pretty um on the spot there patty like definitely uh, a pretty good analogy for how the e-books and e-audio books work for uh the easiest way to explain it is some books come with different licenses or um, for each book. So we may have a book for, say, 26 checkouts. So we can have that book circulate 26 times, be checked out 26 times, but then our license ends and then we have to return them. Uh, that being said, we do have larger licenses. So sometimes it might be a period of months, uh, up to like two years. But after a while, yeah, you're right. The book does eventually, We our license for it um, 
expires and then we don't have that copy anymore, say, which is very different from how physical books work, wherein once we have a book bought and on the shelves, it's not going anywhere. So it just sounds like a massive explosion, 70% for digital library, but I would imagine physical library still rules the roost. Do we have some numbers? Because I quoted some 485,000 plus checkouts. Uh, what does it mean for like physical circulation? Is that still the leader? I would say so. I mean, we haven't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we definitely haven't seen or noticed any dip in our in-person attendance. I think we'd like to think that um, now three years out since the pandemic first started, um, we're definitely seeing numbers back to at least normal, um, which is great. But that being said, the people who started using the digital library, we're seeing them also returning to using physical resources. So that being said, I don't think the idea of using the digital library takes you away from the idea of using our physical resources as well. In fact, most of our library users we see do a bit of a balance of both. Let's get into funding, because, of course, that will drive how many books you can buy and what kind of services you can offer. In 2011-2012, the government gave the library system about $1.2 million for library materials. Then next year, a reduction of some 21% down to under $1 million, nine hundred and fifty. Since then, the, uh, the budget item, line items has remained the same. Is that accurate? That is accurate. We haven't seen an increase in our funding at all since then. It's been around that 950000 uh, line that you mentioned. And everything costs more. So what are, say, for instance, average increase in the price of books, and what has that static budget for over a decade meant for what you're able to buy, what you're able to offer? Well, actually, since 2012, the cost of books, like physical books, has gone up by about 40%. And that means that we've actually acquired 38% fewer books in the last um, few years because of this, because we're just not able to keep up with those rising costs. How has it jeopardized any, you know, niche or tailored or boutique services, whether it be computer uh, training for seniors or others, or is it simply about the number of books you can able, you're able to buy? Um, uh, we definitely, I don't have the numbers here, but I definitely don't think that we've seen any decrease in those type of services at the moment. Um, most of the stuff um, mentioned in the article, as well as in the report that we have from Ernst & Young, mostly refer to the decrease in how many books we've actually been able to acquire, like resources like that. Yeah, a decade ago, buying about 50000 now down to about 30000 so that's a very steep decline. This is a bit of an odd question, but when I was a child, everyone I knew who had a library card, whether it be because we had the school visits to the library over at the Arts and Culture Center and or families used to bring their children in to get books and records and whatever else or look at the periodicals, who used the library now? We're definitely still seeing, like, the general, our, our big fans obviously are our older population, but I also like to think that our second biggest group is families. Of course, families, um, when people start to have children, they, we start to see them returning to the libraries and, yeah, getting library cards and stuff. One of my favorite things to tell parents is that we don't have an age limit when it comes to getting a library card. Uh, you can get your baby a library card and just start their journey with the libraries right then. Is there a relationship with the K-12 system? Because, as I mentioned, we used to have field trips to the library. 
Oh, yes. I know I can only speak for my experience here in St. John's. I'm not sure how it works in the other divisions, but we definitely do have a working relationship with the school here in St. John's. Uh, We've done very many visits to schools. One of our big presentations we do is through their Kinder Start program. So we often come and talk to parents who have kids about to start kindergarten about like the libraries and how we can help with their school, their kids' school journey. But yeah, we also do presentations for classrooms. I know I did quite a few at the end of the school year to get kids excited for summer. And, of course, we have the TD Summer Reading Program that we run, which is meant to encourage kids to keep reading all throughout the summer, kind of uh, working on uh, fighting against the summer slide, as we call it. The summer slide, I think, has been further complicated by the fits and starts, the stops and starts in the K-12 system, and the whole concept of learning loss. So drive home that concern with the seasonal loss because I think not only catching up or keeping up regarding that concept, I think it's become a bit more complicated and a bit more worrisome given how the pandemic has affected the K-12 system. So go ahead and make your message known for how mothers and fathers, caregivers, families, children should be thinking about reading over the summer because, you know, the lore of getting outside and fooling around and doing whatever you're playing in sports or day camps, maybe not as much time for reading as over the winter, but maybe more important than ever. Yeah, for I, I, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but just from what I know from doing many of the Kinder Start presentations, this is something we talk about all the time with parents, is the idea that reading is one of the most essential skills for reading success. Reading and their literacy skills expand across all different subject matters that their kids are going to go through. It's not just English class. Uh, when we're talking about the summer slide, we talk about how we there's often a dip in kids' grades and uh, reading levels when they return to school in September because they're not always continuing their education and stuff over the summer. I mean, the summer is supposed to be their break. So when it comes to the libraries, our big message with the TD Summer Reading Club is that reading is fun and that it can be done anytime and anywhere and really getting families engaged with it through reading challenges. We often do prizes all throughout the summer. So all across the province, we do a weekly draw for fun prize packs, which features free books and um, other free fun stuff. And, yeah, we just try to make the experience of reading fun so that kids keep up with it over the summer. Anything, pardon me, anything else you want to say this morning, Emma, whether it be something to look forward to in the near future or the long term or anything library related before we take a break for the news? I guess what we really want to let people know that we know how frustrating it can be with the e-library, especially with the long holds and stuff. And I believe that our article with CBC really helped cover that, the idea that um, we're only able to buy a certain number of digital books. But we also like to remind people, if you're on the Libby app, you're waiting for a book, an e-book, an e-audiobook to come in, always check to see if we have it in the library. Our library system has this really great system called province-wide holds, which means we can get uh, any book to you from anywhere in the province. So don't let the long waits on Libby hold you down. Really appreciate the time this morning, Emma. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Emma Craig, regional librarian, a librarian for St. John's and the NL Public Libraries. All right, let's take a break for the news right on time. When we come back, travel and transportation, roads, Air Canada, whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. David, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling regarding Air Canada. I got quite a bit there. Um, Six months ago, I got my son is living up in Alberta, 
And six months ago, he booked and paid for a flight, cost him over $3,000 to fly into Gander. It's supposed to be coming in tonight at 12 o'clock. And it's my granddaughter's birthday tomorrow, and I had arranged a little party for her for tomorrow. And he called me this morning and said he got a a 47-hour layover in Montreal. I mean, he's only got a two-week vacation, and I think this is utterly ridiculous. Did you say 47 hours? 47-hour layover in Montreal. I mean, that's unheard of, isn't it? it? Well, it certainly sounds like it to me. You know, the airlines will keep telling us the same story over and over. Is that, you know, at St. John's International Airport, travel has rebounded to about 90% pre-pandemic. So, okay, they're getting back out there. But the airlines are... I don't know how they're trying to craft the message, but they're telling me, well, we have a pilot shortage and we have an aircraft shortage and some complications about international flights and all. But you sold me the ticket. Then once I pay you, the responsibility is yours, not mine. And if there's a pilot shortage, then adjust your schedule accordingly. If that means you reduce flights and don't have me sitting in an airport in Montreal for 47 hours, I'll take it. It's unreal. I mean, I had a birthday party booked for her for uh, tomorrow. And I had some friends invited for her. I mean, that's all squashed now and canceled. Uh, I mean, he only gets home but once every two years. And he paid over $3,000 for the ticket. I mean, it's unreal. I can't believe it. Yeah. You know, so uh, and I tried to get out of Air Canada. And it's just a well to try to get all of our premier. It's not going to happen. You know, it's just not going to happen. So I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. It's a shame, you know. If if someone has a a wealth of time on their hands, which is very few people, I would suggest, and you've got purpose travel, whether be for a wedding or a funeral or a birthday party or whatever it is, I mean, someone chipping away at your few days or your week long vacation with you know delays coming and going, it's really really frustrating. And then add into the fact they don't really do a lot for you when they compromise your travel plans either. And you know, most of that, some of the loopholes in the passenger, the uh, the, the Bill of Rights for Passengers, and then the transport agency, they don't do enough to crack down on the airlines either. So uh, I've got travel coming up, and fingers crossed I don't get my travel plans complicated or derailed because I'm just not in the mood. So and, uh, I asked him about accommodations. He said, no, he said, we're responsible for our own own accommodations. They're not even going to help them out with accommodations or nothing, right? So, uh, I mean, that's not only chipping in on his time, but it's also chipping in on his pocketbook. Right? 100%. Absolutely. You know, it's unfair. I don't understand. And there's nothing, I guess, anybody can do about it. But I just thank you for this, this opportunity to be able to vent uh, because people need, well, I guess people already know. They don't need to know. They already know what the airlines is doing to us, right? I know, and I hear lots of stories similar to yours. I'm sorry that is happening to you and your family. Hopefully there is a birthday party that carries on regardless of this nonsense. I'm going to try. I'm going to have to call all of our friends now and try to reschedule it, I guess. So I'm not even sure if that's the only delay he's going to have. I mean, he could be delayed more yet. Who knows, right? You're right, David. Hopefully he gets home safe and sound ASAP. Thank you, Patty, for this time. Appreciate your call. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know, I get it. If there's a pilot shortage and a crew shortage, and we know that the major airports, say Pearson notably, which has been extremely problematic for the traveling public, they've staffed up even beyond what they had for a complement of staff prior to the pandemic striking. 
But I cannot for the life of me understand how the airlines can't see the obvious here. You schedule the flights. Not me. You know how many aircraft you have. Not me. You know how many staff you have, whether it be air crew, ground crew, pilots, or otherwise. So if you can't live up to your side of the obligation, my side is to book and pay. Your side is to get me there. So it's not really fair to tell me that, well, you know, we have a pilot shortage. You knew you had a pilot shortage before you booked, before you scheduled the flight and sold me a ticket. So, I mean, they really want a bit of cake and eat it too stuff there. Let's go, line number four. Mark, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy, my son. How are you doing today? Best kind, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad at all. I got a little complaint now. The last time I complained here was, uh, I think, was uh, 2010, Igor. And I'd like to know who uh, that gentleman was on the phone with me. And my son's name is not Igor, it's Nathan. And he said, well, I had a daughter called her Patience. So my Patience wore out around here. I'm home back in Open Hall, out in Bonavista Bay. And uh, the roads out here are atrocious. It's terrible. I spread open tires. My brother split open tires. Rims between uh, my own crew over five thousand dollars in the past two years, and people coming out here to see the uh, sea arch, the geo site they call it. It's beyond me. They got the, the thing pointing towards graveyard of all things in the world. The Department of Highways does nothing here with all the. Uh, the traffic comes through here. I can count on right beside the road, on the main road here. Last Sunday, I'd say over 400 vehicles went through. And they all parked down in Tickle Cove. Ron Hines sang the song Tickle Cove Pond, which is written by Mark Walker. And believe you me, the roads here is not fit to drive on. So what are we supposed to do? I tried, and everyone else tried to talk to uh, the ministers and everything else. We tried to talk to uh, Clarence Rogers, which is the MP for <laughs> And I tried to talk to Craig Party, PC, MHA here. Uh, just well talked to an iron baked pot or, or, or a birch junk. That's the truth. It's terrible. The roads are not fit to drive on. I wouldn't even take my motorcycle out. It's unbelievable. They patch up a little bit. You know what they do here? In here in Bonavista, they put dirt in the uh, in the potholes. That's something to do, would not it? Yeah, which lasts as long as a couple of cars driving over, then it's a pothole exactly. again. Yeah. I just stopped talking to uh, my cousin's. Uh, husband there. He's walking his dog. And he said his daughter came out here a couple of weeks ago. Two towers, two rooms gone. That's my own family. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to uh, people from uh, B.C., Quebec, and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Texas. All comes down behind my brother's place to see the sea arch in Tickle Cove. And they parked behind my brother's place. They'd never see the roads are bad before. It's on the bottom of the peninsula. And I got a guy here that's coming in here from the uh, uh, Netherlands. And he's right across the road to me. And he said, down Twilling Gate? Just as bad. Wow. I'm on the bottom of the peninsula. So what are we supposed to do? 
I don't know. Uh, and I hear this all the time. You know, I had a visitor, a friend of mine. Okay. It's no point. The same as snow claims wintertime. What are we? We're nothing out here in the outports. Who made Newfoundland? Tell me. What made Newfoundland? It wasn't St. John's. I can guarantee you one thing. What made Newfoundland? It was the fishery. And believe you me, that's all people here know. They're scarred like I don't know what. And I guarantee you one thing I had enough. So I'm setting up a, a, a Facebook thing. If I got to go out and get J1 up there in, in Lipridge to come down with a couple loads of uh, asphalt and just get volunteers just filling potholes. Is that what we got to do this day and age? Is that what we got to do? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's, it doesn't sound like something we should have to do, given the fact I pay an awful lot in income tax and gas tax exactly. to the province. Exactly. And uh, why not? Why can't we get anything done? Well, now the government will tell and you. The amount of traffic. <coughs> I'm, right, I'm, I'm right over the water here in Open Hall. I have a beautiful view. I want to retire. I'm semi-retired. And I have, I look out and see the whales, see the guys go fishing and everything else. It's beautiful. And then my brother's place down there, actually you should put a gate up there and charge five bucks every time someone comes in. You get over to the sea arch there. And it's a geo site. And there's nothing done but the roads here. How can we fix the roads here? Not only on the benefits of the peninsula, but the rest of Newfoundland. How can we do it? And nobody wants to do anything. Government tells me that they're spending an unprecedented amount of money this year, and fair I, enough, but the, everywhere you go, do, do, and it doesn't matter. And, you know, I know this doesn't matter one iota to you, Mark, but I can tell you in no uncertain terms, the roads are far from good around here in, in, the, in the Northeast Avalon. Pardon? I saw the guy on a motorcycle the other day, just like going in through a maze. That's how you get out of here. I wouldn't even take mine out of the basement. I take my dirt bike out, but as much as you can drive around here with four-wheel drive. And the back roads is even ridiculous. What I never see, I'm a heavy equipment operator by trade. 34 years in there. I see the guys coming here yesterday from the uh, Department of Highways spreading the calcium on the road, knock down the uh, the dust on the back roads here. We're in the outports, middle of BF nowhere, you know. But we still, this is the heart of the moving land. And I said, why didn't you put the gravel down? You can't even go in by the dad's place without uh, maybe six, four to six inches, potholes everywhere. And here they go around spreading around calcium. That's okay if you put the gravel down first or come grave it, put the calcium down, grave it again, and then run it back through again. I just shake my head. That's all I'm going to shake my head. They don't sing backwards here and try to talk to anybody in Clarenceville, talk to anybody like Craig Party or Clarence Rogers. Impossible. I'm the idiot. I had enough. Who's going to pay for my truck? Who's going to pay for my brother's uh, truck? Who's going to pay for my cousin? And who's going to pay for uh, the the person from Quebec last year? 
I was talking to uh, the garage manager this morning. He said a guy came in, couldn't speak a word of English. My car, my car is gone. Somehow he managed to fix it anyway. We're busting tires around here like I don't know what. I guess the the guys who sell tires are making a fortune. So what are we to do? I, I don't know. I suppose the protests that you described, as you know, maybe you'll entertain that. But the getting someone to take responsibility or liability for breaking up a, a rim or busting up the suspension or blowing out a tire. Good luck to anybody who thinks they're going to get any level of government to cover oh, no, costs. Not, not, not like that. We're not looking for that. We just want the roads fixed. Simple as that. Understood. Very, very, very simple. But it's impossible to talk to anybody. As far as I'm concerned, I would put the, uh, the three of them now, Craig Perry, and Clarence Rogers, and another twit in Ottawa, put them on a fucking iceberg out there for excuse me. And, of course, the fellas in Ottawa have nothing to do with it. It's a provincial responsibility, so that's where our frustration has to be aimed. Uh, I appreciate the time, Mark. I understand the frustration. Yeah, well, thank you, Petty. I just put my, uh, put my uh, thing out there, and hopefully uh, the crowd out here understands I'm going to take up a petition and see if we get something done. Well, just we'll uh, talk to a grateful now. We'll open the bar for Dela. I appreciate the call. Let me know how it works out. Indeed, it will. I'll okay, go, Mark. I will. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Here we go. And uh, just on the transportation issue, you know, we talked about the WestJet announcement. Okay, fair enough. Going to be some more flights, maybe make it easier, more accessible. Doesn't really uh, deal with affordability. But the story about arriving at St. John's International, whether or not you're able to get a taxi cab, apparently it's better than it was, but there's still uh, some periodic opportunities where you can't get a cab. And, of course, if you see a social media thread on that front, every second one refers to the potential for rideshare like uber you want to talk about that or anything else you can do it after this don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number five tom you're on the air good morning patty morning you got people swearing on the show today two two callers hopefully the last one got bleeped (laughs) no not but well not online anyway maybe it doesn't live in the radio yeah not Um, great you know i don't even where to start but uh, i'm going to start with climate change uh and uh the Greek prime minister said in the parliament that they're at war and the climate crisis is already there. Uh, this is Europe's hottest month ever in 174 years of keeping records. And they've got wildfires and droughts affecting most countries from Portugal to Turkey to, to Russia. <clears throat> China's temperature records are dropping like flies. They've Chinese people down in bomb, bomb shelters to avoid the heat. Arizona. 25 straight days of over 110 degrees. Their previous record was like 17. Children getting getting burned just for, by stepping on uh, the pavement and other dark surfaces. People who are like used to living there saying they've never experienced anything like it before. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, of course, uh, we have the tragedy in Nova Scotia and uh, the premier for maybe the third time in, the, in a year reaching out to fellow premiers and offering the support of the province as they recover from uh, unprecedented, which which is a word I think is, seems to be losing its meaning, which means like never really happened before and shouldn't be happening, uh, events. 
and and the poor you know these we you know we've been relatively speaking lucky with with the exception of the southwest coast as far as avoiding the worst of these events but of course pretty close we did did have washouts and we did have three three of the lanes of the trans Canada highway were were closed so we had one lane and you know premier tim houston noting that you know he's had to deal with hurricanes wildfires and flooding and it's exhausting for the the first responders and and also of course the residents you know you got up to 12 inches of rain very quickly and, and which is a massive amount of rain but, but it's also the speed i had an engineer say to me the other day that that the uh that the uh, storm sewer in St. John's can take two inches an hour of rain, so that's 50 millimeters of hour per rain. And then I, when that when that surpassed, that's when flood building hospitals and floodplains, or living along the Rennies River, because pretty well everything that comes down the valley has to go out through Kitty Vitty. And you know, you know, I just reflect upon it, and and I, and I, I just ask myself like. Like, where's the sense of urgency? Where, where's the, you know, within, you know, we hear press conferences where, you know, replacing uh, diesel generators and parks with with uh, solar panels and, you know, the city of St. John's is investigating uh, hybrid buses. But, but none of that changes the fact that we have to figure out a way to do everything differently and radically. And, and the main challenge for the rich countries, especially the really inefficient countries and provinces like Newfoundland and Labrador is that we're the ones who have to change the most because we're the ones that have the most unsustainable um, economies and the most unsustainable uh, infrastructure, especially when it comes to how we move things around and, and, and the choices that we make. And, you know, I realize nobody likes change and, you know, we, we obviously have a, have something that's baked in culturally, but I would love to hear how our governments, provincial and municipal governments, are really addressing the significant change that's required. So I reflect upon the fact that, for example, just within the city of St. John's, when it's break time or lunch time, the snow clearing equipment and the the, the, uh, the garbage collection trucks and and the maintenance vehicles all return to either the depots or they go to the local restaurants and and I just wonder, is there, you know, is there an opportunity there for us to to say, well, maybe those vehicles should just stop where they are, and people should just sit there and eat their lunches, and maybe they shouldn't idle. And and, and how do we, you know, how do we even begin the process of realizing that just because it was that way in the past, it cannot be that way in the future. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, maybe uh, a replacement snowplow operator gets driven to the plow in a pickup truck versus bringing the plow back to Black Marsh Road. I mean, simple things like that, sure. But does that reflect the sense of urgency that you're referring to? And what does that actually mean? Because the fact of the matter is there's all kinds of ways that individuals and companies and governments can deal with emissions coming from transportation. But a lot of the commercial and industrial applications that remain in the modern world are still fueled and driven by fossil fuels. So what does urgent look like in your mind? You know, it's difficult because we have to all accept the fact that our standard of living has to drop as we define it economically, not necessarily how we define it from a uh, happiness measurement, because, of course, some of the happiest people in the world live in places that have lower standard of living than we do. Um, 
you know, it's difficult. So, you know, and the other thing that we all need to recognize, it's actually not the poor people who, whether it's on the global poor or even on the re- Newfoundland poor, are really the ones that are having the greatest impact on our climate. And we have to stop burning fossil fuels for pleasure. That's where you start, you know. And there's a lot of that. You know, I spoke to a young fellow the other day. Uh, he was working with me. And I said, what are you doing over the summer? He said, well, I'm riding bike. I said, well, what are you riding? He said, well, I got a dirt bike and I got a quad and I just we just got a side-by-side. I said, what kind of dirt bike you got? He said, well, I got a two-stroke. I said, well, do you ever think about the fact that two-strokes burn oil-gas mixture? And that's really, really harmful, like way worse than otherwise. And I said, how about a pedal bike? And he, he kind of laughed at me. And, I, you know, and that's kind of like a micro thing. And these are very difficult. Like, you know, you have to look – we have very courageous people. I've looked people in the face and say, hey, you know what? It really, really sucks, but we're not going to get to travel on airplanes until airplanes can be net zero, like unless we absolutely need it. And that starts on a provincial level. You know, it starts on a municipal level. Like politicians and our employees, and if they, unless they absolutely need to get on an airplane or drive across the province in a bigger vehicle than they need to, like, you know, we're looking at – Investing, we should be looking at investing in cross-province and regional uh, public transportation. And there needs to be more stigma about the vehicle choices that we make. And this is difficult. Like I understand that it's mostly. Well, I mean, don't tell me I can't have a pickup truck to drive back and forth to the grocery store. But you know, we because we're not going to be impacted as badly in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, hopefully, as say the global south. You know, places where they're really going to get hammered. Or if you're an island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Like that, that doesn't morally or ethically allow us just to continue doing whatever the heck we want to do just because we've always done it like this in the past. Like, like you know, I realize it's difficult, and I realize nobody, you know, I, I don't know how we find that place where we realize that every almost everything we do every day is is shortening humanity's uh, sense of existence in the future, like as we define it now. You know, the world, if El Nino kicks in like they say it's kicking in and going to kick in next year, uh, we don't know uh, what what the impacts will be. However, if if all the breadbaskets of the world, which are simultaneously now getting hit, hit with heat waves, um, have it worse next year, we don't know what food inflation looks like when the crops fail simultaneously in on three or four continents at the same time like we can't even wrap our heads around what that looks like and the challenge is everybody thought this was going to be slower even the climate scientists like what's happening now is 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 unprecedented and scary for people who have seen it coming and and it's it's models are being broken by what's happening this year and we're not even in del nino yet next year is going to be worse we weren't supposed to have. We were supposed to have a very low hurricane season this year, and they revised that to say we're going to now have an overactive because El Nino is supposed to cause less activity in the Atlantic when it comes to hurricanes. Well, now they're saying we're, instead of having eight, we're going to have eighteen. There's a really big difference between eight and eighteen when you talk about major hurricanes, and 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 unfortunately, because the water's so warm, that means it's going to get up here, and they're going to get to a certain percentage of them are going to get to Newfoundland and Labrador, and and you know I just. We need to all be having very difficult discussions, but it has to start with courageous leadership from mayors and premiers and ministers and local community leaders and business people and family, patriarchs and matriarchs and friends and family. And, 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 it, and, and not from the point of view, like, we realistic, we can't snap fingers and magically fix it. No individuals can, no country can, and that, that's a fact. However, social contagion is something that happens when enough people start 
thinking a certain way and acting a certain way. And it has to start simultaneously everywhere, like, but it has to start somewhere with, with a small group of people. And, and everybody listening to this show and the people who transcribe these things and send it to our leaders need to sit back and say, yeah, I know I'm getting my four, five, six weeks of holidays this year and blah, 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 blah. And maybe like Eugene Nippert said, they don't, they don't give a crap. And, and like someone else used another expletive and, and, you know, you know, like, um, Des Sullivan said on Friday that, you know, hydro is just deceiving us. And that's the type of government that we have because they either a tell us what we want to hear or deceive us or misinform us, you know, and we're dealing with the body safety program, trying to get that in schools. And we just have to ask ourselves, like, why don't people care enough? Like, I don't, I don't believe they don't care. Like, like I'll disagree with, you know, people say they don't give a crap. They do care. But definitely the people who have the ability to do, to lead us and to give us guidance do not care enough. They, they, you know, I see it. I see it personally, and I see it anecdotally. And it, it can't be business as usual anymore. Like, oh, I mean, I mean, all the unprecedented things that are occurring in the world. Um, if it doesn't motivate, like, the problem is it scares people. And when scare, people get scared, they 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 freeze. They may look to leadership. And if all leadership is doing is flying around in airplanes and business as usual, and everything's going to be okay, and oh, let's push for more hydro, more fossil fuel development. And that's all they talk about. Um, then people say, well, I'm afraid, so I'm paralyzed with fear because I can't ignore the news. But my leaders aren't leading me anywhere, so that makes it worse. And so. Leaders have to find a way. People, people actually want people to tell it like it is. There's a reason that people voted for Donald Trump, and I do not disagree with them. And I, you know, I'm not advocating for him, but it's because they saw him telling it like it was in their opinion. Whether I mean, I don't think he, what he said was a lot of it was true, but there is an appetite amongst humans for leaders that are frank with them or are straight with them. And I call on leaders to realize this is your time. Like everybody here has everybody who has any leadership potential whether it's Eugene Manning or the premier or anybody else, the people want you to lead them. These are very scary times and it is only going to get scarier. And when, when I have to send you a tweet to ask, you know, the, the head of the nurses union about why not 18, why, you know, cause she said 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, $2,000 raise, but no, it's an 18% raise. Be straight with people. Like we shouldn't have to, investigate and do freedom of information requests to get the facts. We need leaders who just tell like it is, explain why we need to do things. And that's what I call on our leaders to do. And, and let's pull together instead of pulling apart. Appreciate the time, Tom. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Derek, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. I'm doing okay, Derek. Uh, Let's see if we have a decent cell phone connection. Go ahead. Okay, uh, can you hear me now good, Patty? Yeah, not bad. Go ahead. Or maybe not. Derek, are you still there? I'm going to put uh, Derek on hold. Do you want to pick up his... Okay, let's give it a shot, Derek. Give us a move four or five feet one way or the other. See if we can get a connection here. Uh, we're good now? Okay, let's try. Go ahead. Okay, uh, about four and a half years ago... I got a contractor come in. We got a contractor. Me and my got a contractor come in to my roof. 
and our basement door. He was a licensed contractor. That, that was uh, that was licensed to my mother because she was the one being the call sign of the. Yeah, that's not working out. So, Dave, you want to just speak with uh, Derek and see if we can't uh, navigate this connectivity issue? All right, uh, you know so. People like or loathe some callers. That's just nature of the beast, right? That's the way the world works. And inside the world of uh, upgraded storm forecasts and hurricane season and all the rest of it, you know, regardless of what you think contributes to it, regardless of what you think are the potential solutions to slow down some of the issues that we've seen, and again, don't take it from anybody, from Tom or from me or anybody in the political sphere about what the implications are of man's activity. The, the oil companies themselves have testified under oath. They knew what was coming. They knew what their contribution was regarding the extraction and the usage of fossil fuels. So it doesn't matter what any of us individuals think as lay. I'm, I'm not a scientist. But the oil companies have admitted it under oath. So there's that. And again, regardless of what you think is causing these extreme weather patterns, regardless of what you think the solutions are, the facts on the ground are what they are. Even if you just look at storm season and what ocean temperatures look like. The ocean temperatures around this province are abnormally high. Now, is it a blip on the radar? Is it going to be a permanent feature? The warmest spot in the ocean around North America is in Grand Bank. How could that possibly be? And is that accurate? Did I read that story properly? But if we have ocean temperatures that are five degrees-ish above normal, and what that might mean during storm season is extremely problematic. And it doesn't matter, once again, who you vote for, why you think of a carbon tax, why you think of clean fuel regulations, why you think about uh, fossil fuel extraction. None of that really matters if we look at the snapshot in time of what is the reality of the temperature of the ocean. If the hurricane forecast has been upgraded, the warmer ocean temperatures absolutely add fuel to the hurricanes, add fuel to any storm, post-tropical or otherwise. So again, you know, realizing what the insurance industry has looked at over the last decade and the numbers of millions and billions of dollars that have been paid out in damages, flooding, wildfire, storm surge, and otherwise, something is happening. And it doesn't necessarily matter what you think it might be, but this storm season with these warm ocean temperatures, if they persist throughout the entirety of the hurricane season, then that's just bad news. And it doesn't matter who you vote for. If we're just looking at the summer, if it looks down the road or what policy looks like and the advent of technology and all the rest of it, sure. But the immediacy of the summer hurricane season or the fall, summer and fall hurricane season, it is absolutely real just based on the ocean temperatures that are being recorded and documented today. Let's see if we get a better connection with Derek on one. Derek, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, sorry about that. But the service, I'm not going to say our cell service don't got good reception in Newfoundland. <laughs> There's a problem. Yeah, this, uh, that's a big problem, especially on the highways. Uh, I have a, a problem. Uh, about four and a half years ago, my dad and I had a roof, new roof put on, and a new basement door had been put in by a licensed contractor that was given a license by my mom, who was the co-founder of the BDDC. And like when my dad died, my roof, the roof had started to leak. Not even the roof wasn't even six months old. And the roof started to leak big time, got my ceilings ruined. So I got I got my insurance guys come in, and they said, there's nothing you can do because it's the contractor's fault. So I had phoned the contractor back again down on the south coast, and he says, I'm not coming back because your dad has died. But the housing still has been still lifting his name before it was all thrown over to my name. 
and she won't come back. My roof is ruined. I got to put on a new roof. No, that's only four, let's say four year, four and a half years old, and a, and a new door. And I don't know what to do. I mean, this man should pay because he was a licensed contractor, and he won't come back because my dad. Is there any way that I can do this? Yeah, well, just so I hopefully I understand here. So the contractor is not living up to any repairs or uh, warranties or anything because the homeowner is now dead. The work is the work is the work. Yes, yeah, my dad is dead. He said I got no right. I don't have to come back because my dad died. I don't think that's how things work. Like, if I sell my car while it's still under warranty, the person who buys my car gets the benefit of the warranty, right? If it's the factory warranty. So what does that have to do with anything? Who's alive, who's dead, whether or not... Like, if I put a new roof on my home and I have a 15-year warranty or a 10-year warranty and I sell the house next year, the warranty doesn't die with my sale. See, this is what I don't understand. So I didn't know, like, after all those years, someone had basically told me, call you, and then basically, you know, should I call Consumer Affairs and, and Bitter Business Bureau and things like that or what? I, I really don't know what to do, but, but all I know is my house is being ruined because of his work. Well, there's two places, and you mentioned both. So you can file it with the BBB because some people do indeed rely on the Better Business Bureau to see whether or not there are complaints, formal complaints about one service provider or another, contractor or otherwise. And yes, complaints for consumer affairs in the province are handled at uh, Service NL. So that's where you can also turn for those types of complaints. And there's, it might not settle or solve your issue today, but it's worthwhile. I would prefer if people put the complaint in versus not because just throwing your hands in the air certainly not going to settle it for you. So I would do both no, of those. No, I, I, had a, I had enough just throwing my hands in the air and going after, and asking him. So I got to go other places, right? Yeah. I can do other things. Absolutely. And this will... So I guess consumer affairs and that would be the answer for this for this guy. It's the first step. Because I can't believe... I can't believe that he said because, I mean, he was good. My mom got him on the go and my dad, we were all... Because my dad had died, he said, no, I'm not coming back. I don't have to. So I figured that was it, right? But now you, you have no, I will phone Confused Consumer Affairs and BB uh, Business Bureaus. I, I do both. Service NL would be the provincial matter, and on the big scheme of things, the BBB, I would do absolutely both of those. Okay, Patty, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Derek. Let me know if anything works out. Thank- I will, Patty. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break here. Gerard, you're next to talk about road signs and other matters. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Gerard, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Patty, um, I caught a glance at you at the market there about a month or so ago, so I said, that's that's my cue to give you a call. So I, <laughs> I've been waiting a while to do it, but I, I, I'm going to do it. But The market meaning uh, the grocery store? Yeah, I okay. think I called a little while ago. Very good. Anyways, perhaps you forgot. Um, so the first thing I want to mention, Patty, is uh, last week there was a... Uh, a poll, VOCM poll regarding uh, as they are daily. Uh, do you agree that the or do you agree that the uh, mobile health clinics will improve, you know, healthcare service in Newfoundland and Labrador because they're they're planning to launch them? I think maybe later this year or next year. And I, I think they they will. And I'll just speak uh, my own experience uh, through a family member who who's dealt with the uh, the collaborative clear, uh, care clinic. Uh, here in St. John's, and uh, you know, I think it works marvelously. Um, uh, family member, their uh, family doctor uh, closed the clinic and moved elsewhere, and you know, they had to go to uh, to see a doctor. So we chose between emergency and this uh, care center, and it was 
absolutely worked very well. Um, you know, the staff there, the uh, the assessment by the nurse practitioners, uh, the follow-up call within like five days to the patient, and uh, so you know, it's a full uh, full thumbs up to uh, Dr. Parfrey and uh, Sister Davis. And the whole, you know, healthcare community. Um, well, we're still a long way from seeing anywhere near full implementation of recommendations inside the health court. I mean, that's a generational document, as much as they call it a 10-year. The collaborative care clinic, I'm a patient of one, uh, conceptually makes all the sense in the world. The trick is whether or not we add healthcare professionals to the system as opposed to simply move someone from their private practice in Mount Pearl to the collaborative care clinic on Monday Pond Road. So conceptually, totally get it. If if it's going to be 35 of them around the province and we add healthcare pros to the rosters to open these clinics, I think it's a great idea. And team based care is absolutely the way of the future. But we got to move, we have to build on concept and deal with the human resources issues. In oh, my absolutely. And we're at the mercy of that, no different than uh, in terms of human resources than, uh, you know, many uh, businesses and public services, what have you. You know, this is a labor, our own son has a. Uh, one of our sons has his own business, and then he took a while to ramp up and get the employees that he wanted in place and, and keep them. So, But uh, anyways, I just wanted to uh, touch on that for a moment. Uh, the next one is uh, basically, uh, it's, it's not me. I know from speaking with other people, particularly visitors, visitors is the, uh, you know, the... I guess the, the condition of the, the road sign, certainly within the... St. John's area, the Avalon Peninsula, the directive signs that the province are responsible to erect and maintain. Uh, I don't know, Patty, about you, but uh, we've, you know, visitors that have uh, are in Newfoundland now, friends of ours that actually grew up here and are back visiting. You know, they've been away a while, and uh, you know, the 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 number of obstructed signs from vegetation, missing signs that have been just knocked down with storms or or, or equipment, what have you, that have been down for years. And uh, like signs that are just unnecessary. So I, I, back in January, I, I spoke. I didn't speak with anyone. Actually, I went on to Engage NL and made a list, a short list, and there is a very long list of uh, of these things that need to be repaired. And I think it's important because if you're going to be, you know, you know, uh, spending, I think you're going to spend like 1.4 billion dollars over the next uh, four, three years or five years in uh, transportation uh, in Newfoundland. And I think we're up, we'll be up to a, like a hundred billion on the, the Team Guzhu Highway when it's complete. Um, uh, you know, there's the Harbor Arterial, that's what 14 billion. The Western Access to Galway, another 10 billion, or 10, 10 million, sorry. And uh, to me, it must, there must be a, just a disregard for doing something about them because you know, you give people direction on how to get certain places and signs are just not there <laughs> they're not if you're giving the whole example to you but I'm sure, maybe you observe them yourselves i'm sure many listeners do as well and i i just think it's it's time to uh you know I, i'm going to reach out to uh, minister abbott uh, and if one of his deputy ministers is listening or one of his uh, regional managers you know feel free for the person who took my call is it david to give them my phone number, and I will talk with them. I'll, I'll, I'll put up my hand, and I will consult for free for whatever t- for a day or so. Um, and I just, you know, it's just it's disappointing. Like everywhere you go in the world, like a developed city, a capital city, you see appropriate signage everywhere, right? You like, do. The, the first, the first sign that you see that there's an airport 
in St. John's is 500 meters before you actually get to the exit to the airport on the Trans Canada going east. So I'm thinking, like, what if you know someone comes in from uh, Houston, is heading down to Placentia or Argentia to work down there? No trouble. You'll you'll get there. You'll find your way out. Uh, so you come back. You know that you got to go back to the airport with your rental car, likely. <laughs> And fog and rain, and you know, you probably there's just you know it's crazy. I I I don't get it. Like if you go to small small cities in uh, you know Portugal or Ireland or you know, Mexico, you know, there's always advanced signage to your international airport, and it's like, anyways, I hope others hear me out and write Minister Abbott on that. So anyways, that's my, uh, that's my soapbox on that. And just one quick item, if I could, sure. on Muskrat Falls, and uh, just going back to uh, Des Sullivan, who called you there, on, I think, on Friday, and, uh, you know, speaking about the current, you know, comments from the, or the, the Miss Williams on, on the, the last, say, six or eight months on the whole matter of Muskrat. But, you know, I think the whole thing that is missing from uh, my opinion, and my, from my perspective, and many others, I'm sure, is that the accountability of, of the whole project itself. Um, you know, back in, I think it was April of the winter of 2020, uh, Minister Par- was, uh, Andrew Parsons, who was Minister of Justice at the time, you know, um, asked the RNC to investigate, you know, the whole matter based on the comments from uh, Justice LeBlanc. And... Uh, and look, I, look, I haven't heard. I, I don't expect the PCs to ask, you know, the new minister, uh, uh, what's the status of that three years later, because they they sanctioned it. But I, I think it's time for the NDP to probably put their hand up in in the next section of, of the House and say, like, you know, wh- where is this? You know, is there going to be any accountability to this whole project uh, from, a, 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 I guess, a, the Attorney General's level, or is it just going to be? You know, 10 years from now, is it going to be just like Miles Leger or Hickman Equipment where it just gets, oh, the judge says, oh, this has been on the go 10 years. You know, we'll just got to close the file on that. So, Well, anyway, we don't I even think. know what files have been opened. You know, during the LeBlanc inquiry, there was specific reference to referrals, whether it be for potential, uh, potential or pending civil matters, referrals to the RNC for a criminal investigation. And since then, not a peep. So okay. accountability has been absolutely nil. Like, what has happened yeah. to anybody? Nothing. People yeah. maybe got shuffled around. Some folks were, uh, I'm going to say, notorious involved with this project. They're still working yeah. for us. You know, right. how does that work? The uh, And the current uh, hydro staff, like uh, the engineer Hewitt, I think he's a vice president, and uh, Williams, they, they've kind of more or less inherited this, you know. So you know, I think they need to relax a little bit about the whole matter and, and just kind of proceed to try and get the thing working. But uh, Well, we have no choice. You know, it's said that Jennifer Williams has done a good job. Fair enough. She inherited yeah. this gig. And, you know, whether it even be compensation for executives and bonuses, what have you, those were irritants to the general public. They've been dealt with. So it's yeah. not about uh, Jennifer Williams. She's probably doing as good a job as she can do, given what she inherited or the cards she was dealt. But it's those yeah. who were at the helm at the time. And we all know who the, we all know the names. And what? Nothing. Yeah, actually, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what like I can do. I almost feel like you know, <laughs> you know, you can write as many letters as you want. I don't know if you ever get responses, but I just hope that uh, the NDP, you know, uh, Jim Din seems to be a great spokesperson for all matters within within the uh, for 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 everyone, you know, uh, to government. So hopefully Jim is listening. He can uh, 
make a note of it and ask uh, Justice Hogan in, in the in the fall. What, what's the, what's the status, please? <laughs> And I don't know if anybody has an answer. I think the only person, uh, one of the 40 members of the House of Assembly that might possibly have some actual answers in hand, in mind, would be the Justice Minister, uh, John Hogan. So other than Minister Hogan, which I assume probably then includes the Premier, uh, obviously, but I don't know, forever going to, unless there's going to be an actual filing in the courts, criminally or civilly, it's going yeah. to be highly unlikely that we ever get an answer. Yeah, and I know that's a very complicated matter. You know, the legal matters going that deep into you know uh, 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 persons working with with crown agencies and public officials, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, it, it, I think all the taxpayers kind of all try. Like I'd put my head up and say, yeah, we gave uh, you know Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. or Miss Who you know X number of million dollars to uh, to leave Nalcor. Well, I put my hand up and say, look, I'm willing to, you know, as a taxpayer, I'll, I'll put some more, I'll put another dollar, another ten bucks, or a hundred bucks into a fund to take this thing to court, see if we can get an answer, because it's uh, it's a pretty sad state, sad state that the province is in because of it. And I think the province is actually doing well, but that's a huge uh, burden to have, which, you know, the cost is just uncalculable. Well, and it's not even working yet. <laughs> so yep. there's a lot to that muskrat-related conversation. We can break down what are still some of the obstacles that are yet to be overcome in full. The, you know, last year we were told that, you know, for all intents and purposes, final sanction has taken place. And then to find out, no, not really. And it doesn't even seem like until, like, for, you can tell me sanction today, but until, add to it, you're telling me it's going to take four years to uh, add all these airflow, airflow spoilers to deal with the galloping. If that's going to cause potential for frequent trips of the system, then sanction is just a word. It's whether or not it works and is reliable is the real key. I don't care what you call it, but I want it to be reliable, not just worry about whether or not it's actually officially sanctioned. You know, what does that even mean anymore? Uh, I appreciate the time, Gerard. Last word goes to you before I take a break for the news. No, Patty, I enjoy your show since I kind of gave up the 9 to 5. I think it's uh, your show is authentic, and I, I think you engender trust in a lot of people who call you. I appreciate the kind words and the time this morning. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, Karen's in the queue to talk about accessibility issues in the national parks. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Karen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Good. Well, I'm doing fine now. I'm sitting here in my campsite in Terranova National Park enjoying our hot weather. Lucky. Um, yeah, very lucky. I've been out here now for over a week, and it's been absolutely amazing. We've had some, like, 33 degrees today here on the site. Um, and the reason why I'm calling, of course, is yesterday, or Sunday, we undertook the experience of traveling to Grossmorn to go in on the Western Brook boat tour. Now, I've talked to you over the past few years about knee replacements and follow-up hip replacements and still waiting for a knee replacement. So here I am as a person with um, a disability, of course, and it's, it's taken me a long time to get to the point of saying that it is a disability. Even though the joints have been replaced, they're still not what everybody else with their own original joints have. So it leaves you 
with having accessibility issues, which I never thought that I would be in this position when I had these surgeries done. But as it is, this is where we are. So before undertaking this journey, Western Book, which I've wanted to do for years now, but there's always been a reason why I couldn't, weather-wise, COVID, everything else. So we finally figured this year is the year. So I, I, I have a mobility scooter here that's electric. And so I figured it can get me in that new trail that they have. So I call out just to make sure that it's allowed because several people told me you may not be allowed to take that in. Lo and behold, I was told, no, I couldn't take it in because it was uh, an electrical, electric vehicle. So I said, well, what's the option? They said, well, we have an a, um, accessible um, adult uh, wheelchair, all-train wheelchair that can get you in. And I thought, okay. So I put my pride aside and I said, okay, we'll give it a go. So we took the journey on Sunday. We hoteled it in Deer Lake overnight. And then yesterday morning got up and took the one-hour hike up the northern peninsula to arrive there to take this mobility scooter out of what they call the cage. And it was nothing but a glorified baby stroller about a foot off the ground. If you know anybody with a hip replacement and knee replacement, you know that that's not going to work. You can't get over the bars, get down in this thing, and, you know, like, you don't get on on the floor. You don't get a foot off the floor once you have, you know, uh, joint replacements. It's just not, not the thing that you can do. So here I am standing there trying to figure this out, uh, totally embarrassed, and aside from putting my pride aside to do this, realizing there's people coming and going, like hundreds of people all over the place, and they're watching this senior lady trying to figure this thing out. Well, I ended up just walking away from it. So I called the boat people that the, had the contract for the Western Book Trail, and she said that um, they would refund my money, which was not the issue, but I said, the issue is I still can't get in there. Like, how come this is not better accommodated? Like, all you need to do is put a golf cart there to take somebody in that has a mobility issue. She said, we've actually bought two gar- golf carts, but Parks Canada won't allow us to use them. So I called Parks Canada. Actually, last Wednesday when this started, and the girl was going to call me back, she called me back yesterday when I was almost back in Terranova, I was in Grand Falls, with an answer for me, uh, and her answer was, we just don't know what to tell you, but you can't use uh, an, an electric scooter to go in there, an electric motorized anything. So I'm left here thinking, nobody wants to give me the answers. The guy that I spoke to finally on Saturday that booked this adult baby stroller for me uh, told me that that was the only option and that no motorized vehicles can go in there, period. And like, so where do we go from here? Like, when you look at the website for national parks, Stephen Jabot, he has a big write-up there about how they're going to be fully inclusive. That's the first thing for national parks. Number one, to be fully accessible. This is 2023. We should not be incur, you know, incurring this problem right now. We should be able to get into that boat tour, no matter what your disability is. 
100 percent look for starters i don't know why they changed that walk it's three kilometers so it's you know it's not an overly long stroll but when the boardwalks from playing some natural paths then to move it to this wider gravel path is really is an eyesore on top of it does but but put forward some mobility and accessibility concerns. I mean, I don't know if anyone's made a cogent argument as to why you can't have an electric scooter and or a golf cart. Like, why not? In parks all across the country, they have these issues broached by helping people who have mobility issues with things exactly like that. So what makes it different here? I have no earthly idea. And so, number one, I don't know why they changed it in the first place. And Parks Canada really does need to offer us an explanation as to why. I mean, if I can go around Banff National Park, Jasper National Park, or wherever in this country on an electric golf cart, but I can't access Western Brook Pond, there's got to be a reason. Okay, so here, here's the thing. We drove back yesterday, and all the way back, we, we can't continue to get to the point that it's, it can only be liability. That's the only issue that we, we can go back to, that it's some sort of liability. So, hey, if they're going to put a golf cart there, I'll sign a waiver. I'll get on it. If I fall out of it, I, I'll sign a waiver that it was my issue, not theirs. So if that's the only issue, I'm not sure. But, yes, they did change the boardwalk. But there's a big sign in there, Patty, saying that you can go in on one of those fat-wheeled bikes. You know what I'm talking about, mountain bikes, I guess they're called. So... If it's about running people over on the trail because you're on a motorized vehicle, so so what happens if you get a club that shows up that are bikers, uh, these uh, mountain bike people, and 20 of them show up at the one time to all go in the trail? Like, isn't the liability the same then as if one person is on a motorized scooter? I, I, we can't we can't seem to get any answers for it. We can't. Nothing makes any logical sense. I'm here in Terranova right now, and the attendants are driving around the park on a gas-powered side-by-side. Of course they are. So it it, it can't be for pollution, for, you know, protecting the forest from, you know, carbon or whatever they're saying is going to come from this vehicle. So I have no idea. But my scooter is electric, so there's no reason, there's nothing going to leak into the ground. There's no spillage going to come from it. Like, I, I just can't get my mind around it. It's just, and nobody wants to take responsibility and be accountable for it. I have called, I've talked to people, and all they keep saying is, well, we've been in discussions with these boat people that are under contract and us, and we, right now, the answer is no. Nobody, who can I talk to about this? There's nobody to talk to. So I keep I keep having to go back to the website that says 2023 is our year to be fully inclusive, and they're not doing that. So there's all kinds of inclusivity that we can look at, and and who's going to take that responsibility and say, yeah, well, why not? Because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, lie squarely with the parks, with Parks Canada. We, I remember back when they put that fence up around the interpretation center on Signal Hill. We tried to get yeah. someone on; they wouldn't come on the program. But uh, Dave, let's see if we can get a, take another swing at that and see if we can talk about accessibility with Parks Canada. They can't trumpet it in one area and then deny uh, questions to be asked and answered by the Parks uh, Division. So we'll see what we can find out. We'll invite them on, Karen, and see if we can't get and, down to the brass tacks. Yeah. And finally, this year at the beaches in the park, like Sandy Pond Beach and and a couple of other beaches in the area, they've actually put down the accessibility mats. So it's not like they're not trying, but they're just not getting the full scope of this. And there's all kinds of disabilities and all kinds of reasons why people need uh, an aid to get to a place. I mean, whether it's age, whether it's, you know, 
knee replacements, hip replacements, or whether it's just, you know, I, I just can't do it. It's a three-mile hike, so let's get this thing figured out, right? Appreciate the time, Karen. We'll follow up with Parks Canada. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Enjoy the rest of your holidays. Here we go. Okay, let's take a break. We know that elections are ongoing for membership or to be a member of the Board of Regents at Memorial University. The chair of the Board of Regents is Glenn Barnes. He joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the chair of the Board of Regents at Memorial University. That's Glenn Barnes. Good morning, Glenn. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's nice to be with you and your listeners this morning. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So I know that inside the numbers of the members of the Board of Regents, some 17 are selected by the Lieutenant Governor in Council. How many positions are currently op- up for election? The current election is for the alumni representatives, and they, they have hold six seats on the board. Uh, so it's those six that are up for election right now. With the uh, amendments made by the provincial government and two academic members now joining the Board of Regents, how does that change the structure or the conversation, or does it? It, it certainly does, and, and, and it's, it's very exciting, actually. Uh, and the Board of Regents and the administration are very excited about these initiatives that that the, uh, the university and the board some time ago recommended to government that um, that the act be updated in a number, number of areas, not the least of which was to invite uh, faculty members to sit on the Board of Regents. And, of course, the government has, has done just that. So we're delighted because because it, it, it broadens out the, um, the discussion around the table, it broadens out the viewpoints around the table. Uh, and Memorial, you know, is a very inclusive organization and in trying to be more inclusive and more reaching out to all of our constituencies uh, as often as much as we can. Uh, and this is certainly a, a, step, a great step in the right direction to, uh, to uh, improving the management, really, of the university. When, you know, people throw around the Board of Regents this, the Board of Regents that, but I would bet my salary that most people don't really know what goes on at the Board of Regents. So, like, if I'm on a corporate board, I answer to the shareholders. The, the, the determinations we make as a board rule the rules insofar as how companies proceed. What sort of clout or role does the Board of Regents at MUN have? So when you come up with recommendations, is that it? It's, you know, upon the responsibility of the chancellor of the university, the president of the university, the VP of the university, f- to implement what the board says or what does that relationship look like formally well I mean really not to, to get into too much detail I suppose it'd be kind of boring but but the university has a bicameral system and simply put the Senate is responsible for academia for degrees courses programs and for things like convocation and the Board of Regents is responsible for the business side of the university strategic direction uh, governance and oversight uh, uh, we manage the operating budget, uh, uh, property, legal, HR policies, uh, governance, all those sorts of pieces of the university. Uh, and in terms of in terms of reporting order, I suppose if you want to call it that, is that uh, me as chair of the board, I report to the, to the minister of education, uh, and then of course uh, the president of the university reports to me as chair, and the vice presidents in turn report to the uh, to to the president. Um, the Board of Regents uh, does have all the vice presidents sitting around the table as ex-officio members, so we do have that, that connection. And, and also we have, uh, I guess, uh, really three members of Senate, really, who are uh, members of both organizations. Uh, our president of the university, Dr. Bose, is chair of Senate. He's also a voting member on the Board of Regents, uh, as is our Chancellor Earl Ludlow uh, and Dr. Lokash, uh, our uh, 
vice president, academic, and uh, and uh, provost. So, so we do have those those sort of connections back and forth. You mentioned uh, Dr. Bowes, and of course, with uh, Dr. Timmons now having left the position, are you able to say whether or not there was a negotiated way out, or she was let go, or how did that actually play out? Are you able to tell us? Well, I'd rather not really speak to HR issues because it's, it's very inappropriate, I think, to talk about individuals and, and their circumstances in, in the public. What I, what, I, what I will say is, is Memorial is, is, is forward-focused, forward-thinking, moving ahead. Uh, we look forward to having uh, the, the new members. We currently have just recently been appointed the board, the alumni uh, appointees coming soon. We look forward to sort of a fresh start, moving forward in, in a fresh sort of way. Um, Dr. Bowes and his team are doing a fantastic job uh, of being good managers, good stewards, and good leaders of the university uh, going forward. Uh, and that's, that's that's really what we're focused on. And, and you know, we, we have a couple of ex- really exciting things that we're, that we're involved in right now. Uh, you know, in two years, Memorial will be a century old, 100 years. So it's been 98 years of educating Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, uh, educating people from around the globe, carrying out uh, research, uh, uh, studying, protecting, enhancing our cultures and our histories. Uh, and uh, and uh, 98 years of that is quite an accomplishment. So in 2025, a company is coming, uh, as, as we often say, in Newfoundland. Uh, we're going to have a great celebration. And the same year, of course, uh, the Canada Summer Games will be here. And, uh, and Memorial University is very much a part of that. We will be hosting about 5,000 uh, athletes uh, and, and, and their, their staff, their helpers, who will use our facilities, use our St. John's campus. So, uh, so that's all very exciting. So, again, Memorial is looking ahead, looking forward, and just exciting things on the horizon. Uh, let's pick up on the Canada Games for a moment. So after the Games come and go, will the newly constructed facilities, track and field in particular, will that be inside Memorial University's portfolio for ongoing operations, cost coverage, or what have you, or will that revert to the city? Well, those kind of discussions are actually excuse me, still ongoing right now as to what will, what will happen to the facilities after, after the Games. And, of course, the, the Games are the city's games led by the city, of course, and Mon is a, a, certainly an excited, willing participant uh, uh, by allowing our facilities to be used. And we're doing a major refit of the Aqua Arena, so we'll have that legacy as well, uh, certainly going, going forward. But as for the track and field facilities, so those discussions are, are ongoing and hopefully will be concluded soon. Dr. Bowes is in an interim position. What role does the board play in the search for the next permanent president of the university? Well, the, the, the board does lead that search, uh, and, uh, and of course a search committee uh, is formed, which we as chair of the board chairs the search committee, uh, and that, uh, that committee will be formed uh, in, the, in the near future. Uh, and, um, and and really, one of the, the first pieces of it really is to is to consult consult widely um, about the kind of leader we want in our future president and the attributes that that person should have, uh, and then of course put together the mechanics of a search and how it would unfold uh, based on experiences in previous searches, based on things that we might want to do differently going forward. Uh, but uh, but though, as I say, though that process will will start. Uh, We'll start in the fall and uh, and really and uh, early New Year get into high gear. Is there a priority given to someone from this province or a direct relationship to this province to lead the university? No, there's no there's no really a priority given to any any geography, any person, uh, Newfoundlander or otherwise. 
we, we seek out the, the best person for the university based on what the search committee and the university and the community together uh, decide is the kind of person we want, uh, and uh, that will that will sort of do the best job leading the university forward. When we talk about the fact you report directly to the minister, when it comes to things like funding, like we've heard from the new minister of education, Crystal Lynn Howell, about ten million dollars for the university for one year offset of the campus renewal renewal fee, but it doesn't speak to the larger, broader issue of the uh, sixty-eight point four million dollars withheld, which has led to a spike in tuition, a doubling of tuition. What's the board's message therein? Because we generally leave it to Dr. Bose or to Dr. Timmons to be the point person. But, of course, you have this direct reporting relationship to the minister responsible and then directly to cabinet. So what's the message regarding the doubling of tuition? Because we've seen a decrease in enrollment, which is, of course, not going to be good news for the long-term viability and health and prosperity of the province. So what's the message on that front? Well, we're certainly delivering the messages to the minister, to the premier, regularly at every opportunity we do a meet on, on a regular basis and we have you know been for some time we've always been concerned of course anytime that your budget is, is reduced uh, it, it does it does limit your ability to, to do your job uh, but it was, but on the other side of it it does force you to um, to look at every piece of the operation and become more and more efficient all the time and uh, and take a close look at everything so I, I think it's really a, a double-edged sword I think our focus uh, always is, and the most important is, on our students. Uh, and uh, some time ago, um, uh, the the pre at the premier asked us to send a list of items that we thought would be ways the government could help alleviate uh, costs to students. Uh, we did that, and of course, uh, we are we are delighted for the students that they've re-injected $10 million uh, so we can we can eliminate the campus renewal fee for certainly for this academic year and, and, and reduce the cost uh, to, to, to students, really. Uh, but, no, we continue to be concerned. Uh, budget cuts are, are difficult, um, continue to be difficult. Um, the tuition freeze, which was ended, was, for example, was simply unsustainable. Uh, we couldn't uh, we couldn't repair our buildings. Uh, we couldn't uh, provide uh, everything that we felt wanted to be provided because remember that um, that this is a vital part of of Newfoundland Labrador. It's the only university we have. It exists to educate Newfoundland's Labradorians. It exists to do vital research and and, and to help humanity really in in medicine and and uh, and oceans and uh, earths and all all kinds of areas. Vital, critical uh, work uh, that needs to that needs to be done. Um, but, but you know, you have to have money to do that. Uh, and now the board is, is is very aware that that the government is constrained and has a lot of organizations pulling on its budget, and that's certainly not lost on us. And uh, and we like to be, as the saying goes, part of the solution, not not part of the problem. So we continue to look for efficiencies ourselves. Uh, and also to look for ways to look for alternate sorts of sorts of funding, but but at the end of the day, uh, you know the government has a responsibility to fund Memorial University. As I said, it's the only university, the vital part of of the province. There's a definite return on investment, uh, you know, to the people of the province, uh, and of course the government certainly is mindful of that. And and the government the government has not been reducing funding to be punitive to us in, in any way. They, as I said, they've got. They have a lot of calls and the money. We understand, we understand that. 
uh, and we, we try to work with the envelopes we have, but um, but it gets to a point where it uh, you know it, it can affect what uh, what you do, and uh, and we we're constantly uh, pushing those uh, those agendas with the government. The two decade long tuition freeze simply saw an increase in fees for parents or students. It just matters what the sum is, the total sum, and then consequently what I can write off on my taxes. So as opposed to a forecasted predictable increase in tuition, we just saw fees go up there. They do not come with a tax break versus what tuition does. So I think a fundamental rejig of how we view that concept is probably required. Uh, you talk about additional sources of funding. Is there a need and a conversation surrounding uh, corporate investment? Because, of course, it's one thing to invest in a Canada research chair, quite another to put your name on a building, for instance. So how do you strike the balance of ensuring it's a public school as opposed to legacy uh, money coming from corporate Canada? Because it's one thing if a rich family injects money, like a Miss Dobbin or something, but vastly different when we talk about corporate interests in the institution. How do you strike the balance? And what does that conversation sound like? Well, you're absolutely right. It it is a balance. Uh, uh, that Memorial has to, as all universities, have to remain autonomous, have to remain independent in order to do the, the vital work uh, that, that we do. Uh, having said that, there, there is, in my view, room uh, for corporate involvement at, at, at Memorial uh, without, without Memorial sort of being beholden, if I use that term, to, to those donors. Uh, I will say that we already have a significant uh, corporate donations, corporate support on all areas of the university, uh, as well as um, corporate and individuals who who uh, who endow uh, scholarships and endowment keeps growing all the time. So there's already a very significant um, involvement. Um, I, I think that um, I think the university can 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 continue to to ratchet that up as as the term goes, uh, and I think you know that. Um, uh, I suppose it's part of our culture really that we're uh, that we're a, mo- a modest people. I suppose perhaps we don't we don't brag enough about the good things that we do, and perhaps if we if we, we if we sort of uh, uh, told our story a little more and told a little more about the good things we do in the university, that will also help attract uh, help attract more more funding. But any funding that comes comes to us, uh, while some is restrictive funding for various programs. Uh, but uh, but we do not accept uh, money from anyone uh, with uh, with strings attached in terms of what we can and cannot do because again that would affect the fundamental underpinning of a university which is the ability to ask the hard questions and make the study the things that may not be always popular to study but that is important for society and, and, and we must do that uh, independently. I agree on the messaging because for far too long it was simply about what it costs uh, regarding tuition as opposed to co-op programs and the successes, whether it be genetic research or whatever the case may be, which is important. Uh, a couple of quick ones before I let you go, Glenn. Do we have a price tag in place currently about the maintenance deficit at the university? Uh, we do. It's, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It is, it is a huge number. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a number that uh, that we continue to try to chip away at, uh, you know, through um, uh, through the, um, the student uh, program, which we now are putting on pause and, and other funds, really. Uh, but but the tuition freeze really over the years have really uh, caused that to increase over the years of the tuition freeze because we simply didn't have the money to fix the buildings and. Uh, and other than the obvious things about about um, you know the look of buildings, 
at the end of the day, uh, you know, you can't have a university that gets to a point that people wonder what kind of quality it has because, oh, look at their buildings and uh, uh, and what kind of quality education am I getting if I go there and, and your reputation falters. And that is the, that's always the biggest concern, the biggest worry. But, you know, we, you know, we do, we do a lot of repairs, upgrades and buildings on a regular basis. And in fact, we just finished a major uh, space uh, planning uh, study really to look at all of our facilities and what kinds of spaces we have, how many spaces we have, what do we need to build new? What do we need to remove? What do we need to repurpose? All with a view of making our our physical plant, physical infrastructure, uh, you know, more appropriate, uh, and and we're looking at things like, you know, does our does our infrastructure reflect the cultures of people at the university? Our students come from 150 countries, for example, and our faculty and staff come from almost as many. So, you know, do we reflect the appropriateness of the broadness of the demographics and the cultures that? That that attend university and Memorial University who learn and teach there, uh, and and if not, how do we how do we incorporate those things into what will be a, a very modern, inclusive uh, university? Well, because when someone does a campus tour, they'll already have an understanding of the academic offering, so they're eyeballing the campus, accessibility issues, uh, proximity to amenities and what have you, so that's the eyeball tour. Very last one before I let you go. I know the Senate has responsibility regarding academic offerings. Does the board have a position on the potential for a new law school? Well, no, the board does not have an official position on it because that uh, that has never has never come to the board in an official capacity. I know that that there was um, there was some there had been some studies done by by senior management and buildings looked at and so on, uh, but that's sort of where it was where it was left at this point. Uh, at, at this juncture, the board has has not given any uh, direction or authorization in any way to proceed in any way with uh, with uh, looking into a law school. Appreciate your time this morning, Glenn. Thank you very much. No problem. Enjoy your day. Thanks. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Glenn Barnes. He's the chair of the Board of Regents at Mon. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mark Lohman. You're on the air. Good morning, sir, and uh, good morning to your listeners. Welcome to the program. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I'm just calling uh, to talk a little bit about the South west newfoundland chapter of delta waterfowl okay um, i just wanted to let your listeners know a little bit about what we've done in the area since we started in 2016 and uh, what they can do to help let's hear it so uh i'm going to try and make it quick because even though we've only started in 2016 we have seemed to done a, quite a bit of stuff here so in no particular order, really, we donated $500 to the local Salvation Army uh, immediately after Hurricane Fiona to help with the uh, initial response in our area because we are based out of Port of Bass, uh, which was hit pretty hard. Uh, we advocate for hunters' rights by fighting any changes that restrict access to hunting areas and, and fighting regulatory changes that negatively affect hunters. Uh, we attend meetings on behalf of local hunters to make sure that our interests are represented and considered, like uh, 
say when we have meetings in our area from the gold mines or windmills to, with the public to talk about the development, we usually go to, to represent the, uh, the hunters. Uh, we install like basket stations at beaches on the southwest coast for the public to use the baskets to like uh, help remove trash from the beaches and they can just put the baskets back when they're done for someone else. Our volunteers on our committee have actually uh, removed thousands of kilograms of trash from our local beaches themselves. We have beach cleanup days where we take the families out and just go pick up what we can. Uh, we've donated $300 worth of body socks to children in our area with autism and sensory issues. Uh, we host an annual sportsman's dinner uh, for local supporters and family. We have like a dinner notch, and and, uh, and we we actually have one coming up on August 19. I'll talk a little bit about it at the end. Uh, we've installed over 120 other nest structures on the southwest southwest coast. Uh, we've voiced our concerns over different development in our area, and twice we've had some development altered to be a little less uh, impactful on the environment. Uh, we sponsor winter carnival events such as fishing derby, uh, skeet shoot, and uh, we uh, buy thousands of dollars in prizes for those events. Uh, we help local hunters understand the rules and regulations and the reasons behind them. Like when they ask us about laws, we like to find the answers for people and help them help them understand. Uh, we demonstrate good hunting ethics and practices for others, particularly youth to see and learn. Uh, we've even helped fight to get regulations changed to help hunting opportunities uh, get maximized, like uh, the introduction of the merganser season. Uh, we pushed for that and got that in, done. Uh, we've helped get the age limit redu- uh, reduced. Uh, Sunday hunting, we've, we, we were involved in all those fights uh, with others too. Um, just, just let me pick up on one. In the reduction of age for both small and big game, how how is it working? Are we seeing more and more youth out there as part of the family tradition and or hunting for food and sustenance? You know, what's the actual outcome of that age change? 100%. A lot of kids um, that had to wait before, they, when, when they got older, they were preparing to leave, go away for college. They were out, you know, I mean... A lot, of, a lot of them were out, like, uh, you know, looking for new friends, getting in relationships and stuff. Now, before all that, they got an opportunity to get out and do hunt. They're younger. They soak it up better at a younger age. They learn better, and they really appreciate it a lot more. It's, it's, it's a much better time to get them out, and it has got a lot more families out and a lot more youth involved. How are we dealing with uh, safe handling? Because everyone, you know, of course, if I'm taking my son hunting, I'm going to be responsible for his behavior and activity on that day. But what are we doing so far as safe handling of the firearm, safe hunting practices for youth in particular? Because I would guess the messaging might be slightly different than talking to someone who's a veteran of decades in the bush. Yes, definitely. Well, like I was saying, we... uh we actually do try. To, we do mentor hunts. We take kids out our uh, our chapter and help teach them, uh, you know, good hunting ethics, good practices. But our chapter has actually put almost 80 kids in our area. We've helped them complete the hunter safety education course. So we paid all the expenses. We've assisted where possible to help the instructor, and we provided meals for the for the attendees for the kids. So yeah, we've put almost 80 through, and. That, and a lot of those kids are out hunting, and even the ones that's not, they have a better understanding of guns and safety behind it. So we really push for gun safety, and, and we actually pay for kids on the southwest coast to, to do it. So it's, it, we put 10 through at a time, and 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of, and, and those kids, when we put kids through anywhere from 12 to 17, they soak it up. Like, they really understand what we're telling them. And when they come in at the beginning of the course, they, you can see they're a little nervous, but when they when they leave, they are handling guns like, like the instructor. They, are, they soak it right up. They learn it really good at a young age. Mark, before we run out of time, you say you have an event coming up, I believe you said on the 19th. Let, tell us about that before we have to say goodbye. Uh, well, we got a, uh, is a fundraiser that we do annually. It's called the Sportsman's Dinner. And um, basically, we have a live auction. We have some raffles. We have a bunch of hunting gear and guns and uh, some homemade items. We got, we got a very wide variety of hunting, home decor stuff. And basically, we raffle it off. We live auction it off. We have a meal. And we just have a good time and get families out and raise a little bit of money so that we can can do all these things that we've been doing where do i find info and get a ticket well you can um you can contact me at 709-694-2869 or you can look up the southwest newfoundland delta waterfowl on facebook good to have you on the show this morning mark appreciate the time all right thank you keep up the good work all right there we go uh, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, Elizabeth Panashaway has the last word. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Elizabeth Panashaway. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you want me to start now? Yes, go right ahead. Yeah. Okay, I just want... Um, I know my English not not very good, but, but I really want to try to say something about... Uh, what what I had a concern. Okay. And um, I just uh, wait, wait. Almost like every day, every month, every weekend, I wait a long time. Why? Why nobody talk about anymore the land, animals, and what, what happened uh, our land, the government, what he done our land. Boise's Bay, Muscat Falls, and um, I don't know, maybe God Island they want to start, I don't know, maybe um, maybe still talk about that. What's, what's going to happen, everything, they're going to be gone, and to me, I'm very concerned what's going to happen, and um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things I want to talk about with my English problem. And then I said to myself, there's a lot of people speak a good English in Shehajit. Why he did, I never heard nothing to talk about uh, what uh, what he had concern our our land, the government, what he done our land. What's gonna happen? Everything, rivers and animals everywhere, all kind of animals. Same thing, Boise's Bay. There's people there, Eno people, and uh, Atoashish. Same thing, Shehajit. There's a lot, lot of people, and there's a lot of children. And there's many, many people died, passed away, old people now. Just my age, just a few, just few people. And then I can't, I can't wait anymore. I want, even I don't speak English very good. I want to say something about what I have concern to learn. What's going to happen if the all uh, old people die? Who's going to help? 
who's going to help the children and who's going to protect, protect the land. Everything, rivers, animals, everywhere. Elizabeth, are you asking who's going to offer those protections if there's more energy development, or are you talking about things that have already happened with the expansion of the mine at Voises Bay and with Muskrat uh, Falls in particular? Okay, can you see that one more? Sure. No. Are you talking about more protection if there are more energy projects? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'd, uh, I said myself, that's enough government what he done. I will name, that's enough. It's, it's everywhere. And uh, sometimes I heard... The people said nobody, nobody here anymore. Nabato, we hear a lot of people here, Shehajit and Natojish, and the children. A lot of people, and um, we want. Uh, I want protect the land, and there's a lot of people maybe concerned, but nobody want to say. Nothing. There's a lot of people could speak English. He should uh, say something. What? What happened? Why? Why the people who don't want to say nothing talk about the the government or what he done our land? Is that you ask me? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, and those voices from Sheji or any other community, they're welcome to call the show Elizabeth, and you should tell them that. Yeah, mm-hmm. because they're all the same. They're all the same, not to us, these people, and hunting, always hunting, like summer, uh, get uh, put a net on the water, get some fish, and I think soon the fish not going to be good to eat, not to us, because, uh, because uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe gas, they're going to be un- under the water, same thing, Muscat Falls, same thing. Um, uh, animals everywhere, not only just fish, all kind of animals, beaver, other, all kind of animals, caribou, black bear, all kind of animals. And what's going to happen if all people, all people died? Just, just a few people like my age. I want to help uh, young children. What's going to happen? Where where they're gonna be hunt? Where they're gonna stay? They're gonna be everything. They're gonna be gone. And the government, she should listen. She should listen. You know, or women when when he talked. I'm very uh, I'm very concerned. And uh, I want to say more, but I'm worried about uh, my English. I hope the people just understand me what I try to say. I think they did, Elizabeth. Uh, people understand the concerns with traditional lands, and I appreciate making time. And you can tell your friends and neighbors that if they want to talk about these things and you think their English is better or not, that they're welcome to call the show. And I appreciate you making time this morning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Take I'm care. I'm happy you, you let me to talk a little bit. And uh, maybe I'm going to try, I'm going to try send my message, somebody, she's going to help me on uh, the paper and letter, paper, and then I can send uh, to VUZM. Uh, yeah, I'm going to try to find someone to help me. Please do. Thank you, Elizabeth.
Thank you. Yeah. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right. Ms. Panashway did indeed have the last word, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.